2: The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. And, buddy, we are now uh, officially three-fourths of the way through our off-season division-by-division recap. Uh, I'll tell you what, we picked a great time to do NFC North uh, about a week and a half ago before a whole bunch of shit went down in the last 24 hours uh, with Aaron Rodgers, so... Uh, we'll probably have to do a little bit of an amendment to that one because the saga only gets better, uh, which as a Bears fan, you know, I'm I'm sure you've been very interested in the last week, but today we are doing AFC North, which I find to be maybe even more of an interesting division, you know, obviously outside of, of me being interested in the Bears, just kind of looking top to bottom, all four of these teams and the storylines behind them. Absolutely fascinating division, very competitive division too. So uh, we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, but before we get into it, before we uh, we hop on the Cleveland Browns for our first team. Uh, EJ, buddy, how you doing? And what are you drinking?
2: I'm good. Summer rolls on. AFC North is fertile ground for football storylines. There are many of them. All the teams have interesting angles. Like you said, incredibly competitive incredibly long tenured coaching staffs, GM staffs, um, don't find that anywhere else in the NFL. Um, two of the top four longest tenured head coaches in the NFL literally play against each other in the same division, which is an embarrassment of riches. It's, it's pretty awesome. So looking forward to the show in general, but summer's going pretty well. And, uh, one of our colleagues, Jordan Rodrique, who writes for The Athletic, covers the Rams, asked for beer suggestions. And I said, we can come to the rescue with that on Bootleg and give you a suggestion every week. This week's suggestion for her uh, editing deadline beer is Pelican Brewing's Paddleback pale ale oceanic pale ale don't know what makes it oceanic but pelican brewing for those of you that don't know uh right on the coast in oregon you can literally walk off their deck into the sand and right down into the surf Uh, i've been there yeah great It's
0: great oh it's so good
2: Beautiful views, beautiful food too uh, as well in their nice little gastropub and lots of great beers. But this one goes out to Jordan. Uh, she is at Rams camp and starting to rev up looking for those uh, you know, late, typically Sunday night deadline beers to file her stories. And we said we'd pitch in. And of course, the cost for that was that we were going to have to have her on the show. And she liked that on Twitter, so we're going to hold her to it. <laughs> but uh, what are you drinking?
0: Uh, So I brought something out uh, a little bit special because I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. Um, It's not often I get to drink something that won best whiskey in the world at the uh, in San Francisco. They have like a world whiskey championship, I guess you can call it. And this in the last time they had it in 2019, the Henry McKenna single barrel 10 year bottled and bond, meaning it's 100 proof. So it's very proofy. (laughs) Uh, it's only the second bourbon to win that competition and the first since like 2003. So uh, this is my, my first go at it. I've been saving it for a while, but it it just happened to find it in a store not too long ago. And the clerk was like, you're going to want to get this. I was like, damn straight. I am. So why don't we hop in and uh, talk Browns first? Cause I think you and I are both just stoked about what the Browns have built Uh, top to bottom. I think indisputably one of the three or four most talented rosters in the league, like not just offensively, but defensively. Uh, The coaching staff is great. The front office is great. Uh, It's, it sounds odd to say, but the Cleveland Browns are a model franchise in the NFL. And this is not a one-off type thing. I think they are here to stay. And I, if I was a Browns fan, I, I don't know what I would do because this is the first time in modern Browns history in the second iteration of the Browns that I think that we've seen them as a model franchise in the NFL and something that is not just a flash in the pan, but a sustainable formula for success. It's a whole new world and I'm very, very excited about it.
2: Yeah. This, if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, this is the rain you have been praying for through the entire drought. Yeah. That stuff. That's what I was saying is legit. I've had it. It's good. You've had this. Yes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's yes. dark
2: i mean I know, it's, I know it's a
0: tenure but it came out dark and i was like oh that is
2: no it's lovely stuff coppery yeah for for browns fans for all the drought years for all the ups and downs and starts and stops and restarts after a year and a half every bit of that when the franchise was flailing around the nfl landscape you, you know, we're praying to the football gods and saying, please, please, please get me a general manager that knows what they're doing. Get me a coach that can use that talent. And you got them both at once. They understand each other. And it's not, it's a bit odd. Their roster is wholly stacked and it's stacked because before two years ago, they were so bad for so long that they always got top picks. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right. And that honestly, that's the base of their roster creation. They had more high picks than almost anybody else in football because they were always bad because they kept restarting. They kept changing horses in midstream and schemes and coordinators and GMs. And it it just, they never had that solid base. You talked about a solid base or a stable franchise. They never had that. So they got top picks. Then Andrew Berry shows up a couple of years ago, and starts. he's had two very good drafts, and he adds to that, brings in Kevin Stefanski, who understands and solidifies through the first half of last year and really, really just sets in place through the last half of last year. We know what we're doing. We have an identity. We understand how to use this wild cornucopia of talent that we have. Again, top to bottom, offensive side of the ball, defensive side of the ball. If you look at this roster, you can find guys on the second and third string that are easy starters on a lot of other NFL teams, and it's just about every position. We're going to talk about one position they were a little bit weak in last year, and they strengthened it this year, and now they're pretty topped off. You could, you could really throw a dart at the offensive or defensive roster, and you're not likely going to hit a place where they have a true like hole like a real need. Yeah. It's that solid. And now that the coaching staff understands that and the players have bought in and they're maximizing that talent, Cleveland looks to be a force for the foreseeable future.
0: I mean, you said it, you look at wide receiver loaded top five group in the league, if not better than that, arguably the best offensive line in the league. In fact, I would say they are the best offensive line in the league. I know there's a couple teams kind of throwing their hat into the ring, but I would personally put Cleveland when you look at their combination of talent, youth, uh, even just contract value. Like I think their most expensive guy is Jack Conklin, but he's kind of worth the money. Like they don't have a bad contract in that entire line. Tight end, they're three deep. I mean, they're third best tight ends. David Njoku, like Baker Mayfield, uh, is he an elite quarterback? Not necessarily, but he's good. <laughs> it's all you can ask for these days. Um, you know, defensive line, Garrett. Uh, Get out of here. Togeye. Billings is an underrated player. Malik Jackson's coming off the bench for him. Uh, They signed Malik McDowell just because they could. Damian Square, underrated guy. Uh, They (laughs) Trying to revive the careers of both Jadavian Clowney and Tack McKinley. They got like 10 dudes. 10 dudes that have all started games. Significant numbers of games. Um, Linebacker, I'd be curious to see (laughs) if... I want to preface this by saying if Owusu Koromoa is playing and you've got Jacob Phillips, Owusu Koromoa, and God, it's either Taki, Taki or Malcolm Smith, I'm okay with that. I don't want them to keep Owusu Koromoa off the field for very long because I feel like he's just better than, than everybody else. But I can understand with his physical dimensions, they're going to try to maybe find some time to work him into a role kind of like Arizona last year with Simmons where it's like, let's try out some different things. Let's see where he fits. I just want him to be on the field. So I hope they don't take too long to kind of, you know, move him along. I just, I think he's really, really good. So linebackers kind of iffy, but the secondary, I mean, you got Denzel Warren, Jod John Johnson, Grant Delpit, coming back healthy Richard LeCount, who we'll talk about in a minute, who I love uh, Greg Newsom, who we'll talk about in a minute. Troy Hill is your nickel greedy Williams is like your fourth corner again other than linebacker which is really just like a soft maybe it's no weaknesses in the entire organization there's no weaknesses
2: it's nah, unbelievable their secondary is ridiculous like yeah their third safety and their third corner could start on two-thirds of the NFL's rosters yeah and it that kind of depth and the fact you talked about Baker Mayfield, we talk about quarterback a lot on this show and and so do a lot of other people. And rightfully so it's really, really important in his position. Baker has talent. He's always had talent, but it didn't mesh with the former coaching staff and the former schemes. They didn't have that way to unify his talent, to maximize it. And Stefanski really figured it out and Baker rose to that challenge, right? He elevated the play of his teammates and if a quarterback's doing that that's plenty to win with that roster and we didn't even we didn't even mention running back by the way you just skipped right over oh yeah 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 and that's probably one of the best if not the best running back rooms in the league they have the best runner i believe in nick chubb and kareem hunt behind that and dearness johnson behind that like who's not a guy that a lot of people know, but when he came in and played for a few downs last year, it was like, who's this guy? I had to look him up. And I'm yeah. like, damn, he can run too. So loaded top to bottom, end to end. The roster's amazing. Andrew Berry has shown a very keen eye for talent. Um, we named both draft picks and free agency ads. He's he's balanced both sides of the house, college and pro. Um, it's They're a scary team. They're not going to be an easy out for anybody.
0: You know, you mentioned, um, you know, Freddie Kitchens just not maximizing Baker's ability from a systemic standpoint. You know, what what style of offense were they running and what style of offense does their quarterback thrive in? Even in the first few weeks of the season, Kevin Stefanski was still trying to kind of work his way. You remember, they got their ass kicked by Baltimore week one and then week two or it might have been week three. And all of a sudden, you start seeing the bootlegs. And when he was under Freddie, that's what I was calling for. I did a whole film room episode, and I was like, look, when this dude is breaking the pocket on scramble drills, either to his right or to his left, and he's throwing on the move, he's unbelievably accurate. And when, he's, when he doesn't have an offensive line full of 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six guys in front of him, kind of clouding his vision, when he's out in space where he can see, he is amazing. And so it took even Kevin Stefanski, without a true offseason, a few weeks to realize, like, I got to get this dude moving. I need to boot him out, get him in space, and then everything else I can live in the quick game. But in terms of taking shots, most of the shots that they took down the field, Baker was outside the tackle box because he's so much better there. And once they figured that out, they took off. That was it. That was it. Nobody could stop him. I think now that they've learned that lesson going into this year with a healthy Odell, with a healthy Jarvis, who's down 20 pounds, by the way. He's the lightest he's been since he was at LSU. Um, I was watching a little thing they did where, uh, were you following Camp Mayfield where they had all, so Baker, you know, during OTAs, he wanted all the rookies to get reps with the coaches because he's like, I want them to get as much reps as possible. So he took all the starters, Odell, Jarvis, DPJ, the running backs, all down to, to Austin, uh, some lake. I can't remember what. And they and he ran his own camp, kind of similar to what Russ does in Seattle,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where he's like, let the young guys go get reps uh, at OTAs with the coaches. I'm going to take everybody else, and we're going to do our own thing. We're going to work on chemistry. And um, so I, I think that's also going to be a massive key to it, because remember – the uh, the early part of the season where none of these guys had chemistry with each other because they didn't have a true off season, they were wild. They were all over the place. Baker was throwing picks. People were running the wrong route, taking the wrong adjustments versus midfield close versus midfield open. Like it was it was a bad time. They didn't really start clicking chemistry wise till halfway through the season. Unfortunately, Odell was already hurt by that point. Now you're going into year two. All these guys work together all offseason. They have a true offseason. Baker knows the system. Stefanski knows what he's good at. They're loaded at every single position group on offense. Find me a defense that's going to stop them. Like, I feel like I've gone on a monologue here for five minutes explaining why they can't be stopped, and I truly believe it. They will not be stopped. The the, the McVay offense and the Chiefs offense from 2018, where they were putting up like 40 points a game,
2: that's going to be this. They're going to shred people. Teams are going to go back and look at that second half film because they're they're just going to ditch the first half film and say, that's not representative. We really need to get to that threshing machine point where they were super effective and they're going to say, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to close it. We're going to sell out and close off one half of the pocket. So if we know he's rolling right, we're going to make sure he can't roll to his right, right? Well, you get to do that once or twice. And they're going to hand it to Nick Chubb, right? They're, this is going to be Stefanski's thing all year. He's going to send Baker to the line with a run and a pass, right? And the pass is going to get stuffed about twice before Baker goes. Fine, man. Yeah. <laughs> you want a steady diet of Nick? I will give you a steady diet of Nick because it's five point six at a pop, right? Well, and he's well, going to break way, a few of them.
0: The best way to stop those deep crosses because like their number one concept is weak side flood which is you're booting one way, you've got the near flat, which is your number one read, you got a cross in the mid-level coming from the other side, and then you got usually some kind of read route, whether it's a post, a go that's just clearing, or like a deep seven or something like that. The only way to really stop that effectively over and over again is if you are playing from a too high safety structure so that you always have one safety deep with leverage on that cross, and then one that can bracket the deeper route with the corner and just force them to check it down over and over again or, worst-case scenario, run it. Because if you're giving up seven yards every now and then, if you're giving up four yards on a Baker-Mayfield scramble, you can live with that. You can't live with the 25 yards on the cross or the 75-yard you know, touchdown deep on shot. the go route or the deep post. Yep. So if the only way to really consistently get good leverage is playing too high... As you said, he's going to hand it off. Because
2: and, and he's handing it off to the best runner in the league. And I know people yeah. argue with me endlessly and say Derek Henry. And and look, when I did my end of season analysis last year to pick our bootleg All Pro team, it that was the tightest, well, one of the tightest top three tightest battles of all the positions that I did was Derek Henry and Nick Chubb. And there's there's reasons you could say either one. I'm not saying Derrick Henry is bad and Nick Chubb is ascendant. Nick Chubb, in my opinion, is my pick. And if you want to stack him against light boxes all day, I will do that all day because (laughs) he's that good. Right. You said you get four yards on a Baker Mayfield scramble. Nick Chubb's average is five and a half plus. Right. And he often rips off seven, nine, eleven. Right. So pretty soon the defense is going to be like, geez, that's that's kind of like giving up the cross, (laughs) right? (laughs) In fact, it's exactly like giving up the cross, except we're getting beat up. You know, our lighter coverage players are getting beat up because they're trying to tackle Nick Chubb and he is blowing them the hell up. So again, when we talk about Cleveland being very difficult to beat, it's go ahead and take away, go ahead and take away all the wide receivers if you want to sell out. Still got to deal with the running backs. Okay, so maybe magically you find a way to sell out and stop all the wide receivers at once, good luck, and the running back, they got tight ends that can crush you, right? Mm-hmm. There's, and and you get all those guys, Baker's pretty quick, right? He'll get a lot yeah. more than four yards if there's nobody on him, any naked boots, right? So it's just pick your poison, and if the Browns are executing well and, and Baker's limiting mistakes, he will find those people, especially outside the pocket. They're going to be a very, very tough out.
0: And all they need is just an average defense. And that is a Super Bowl contender. <laughs> and based on some of the picks they made in the draft, I think they might even be better than an average defense. Because, again, t- talent on talent on talent on talent. Why don't we go through this draft real quick, just kind of run through Because, it, again, it's it's value city here. Round one, pick 26, Greb Newsome, uh, one of the five or six best corners in this class, I think, by consensus there was kind of a tier um you know like a tier 1 of uh the kid from South Carolina JC Horn mm-hmm. um and the Bama kid whose Sertan. name is certain uh and then kind of 2 through 4 you know, there were, you could kind of slot them in any order you wanted to. You know, there was Tyson Campbell. Uh, there was Newsome. There was the Syracuse kid. Again, you can tell I've already moved on from this draft class, and I'm already moving on to the next one because now I just remember helmets, and I remember numbers, and I don't remember names anymore. Um, but, you know, Newsome, I think you I saw people rank him as high as, like, number two in this class. The one thing that gave me pause was kind of injury concerns, but in terms of quickness, fluidity, competitiveness, ball skills, He's got it all. He kind of reminds me of, like, um. God, you remember Des Trufant when he was coming out? Just oh, yeah. <laughs> feisty as all shit. Super competitive. Not the biggest guy in the world, but so smooth, so feisty. Uh, Jeremiah Uusukoromoa, my number one linebacker in this class They got in the second round solely because of a medical flag, I believe, with his heart, if I remember correctly, that the Browns later cleared and said he was going to be okay. But rumor was that that information dropped, like, the day before the draft, and so a lot of teams just didn't really have time to figure it out. The Browns did; they got him in the second round. I, I, 100% believe he would have been a first-round pick if that didn't happen. Uh, Anthony Schwartz, Olympic level speed. They got a wide receiver. He'll be a return, uh, return man. Excuse me. You get him moving on sweeps. Even just put him in for a few snaps a game, just to, just to run deep and say, Baker, run that hit deep him. post. You're talking yeah. about weak
2: flood. Run the deep. You said deep seven. Or middle post, right? You put Schwartz on that and yeah, you you better have some speed with your bracket guy. You can play too high all you want, but not there's not that many teams in a league that have true, two high guys, both with speed. There's typically one you want a little closer to the line and one you're fine letting go deep with people. With him, they they better be pretty close to four four because he's a lot lower than that. So yeah, he's, he's low four two,
0: like, right. Easy Which gas. means if
2: you're not four four ish with size and a head start,
0: goodbye. He's, he's great. Uh, James Hudson from Cincinnati, uh, very underrated offensive tackle. It, it, they don't need him technically because they've got arguably the best tackle duo in the league, but you're only as good as your, your worst guy. And if they lose, God forbid, Jed Wills or Conklin to injury, because they got banged up a little bit along the offensive line last year, you know, having somebody who can step in and you feel comfortable with as a starter for a couple games while Jed comes back or Conklin comes back, I, I love that pick. I think he's a great swing tackle for them. Might even kick inside if they really need him to, because I think he can he can do both. I'd be curious to see what happens with him at camp. Uh, Tommy Togi, one of your favorites strong as an ox Uh, reminded me a lot of Sharif Floyd when Sharif was coming Hmm. out in terms of build in terms of play style just power 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 Um, quicker than you think like I'm not saying that he's like Milton Williams or anything like that but for a guy who's built as square as he is he's got some lateral agility but also just very very strong against the run I I think he's going to be a key part of that rotation uh Tony Fields another EJ Snyder special uh, you, you said multiple times throughout the pre-draft process, if you miss out on Wusu Koromoa, go get Tony Fields. They got both.
2: Yeah. Andrew Barry was like, sure. Just, I was yeah. a little weak at linebacker. Give me two guys in the same mold that are both awesome. And that, that pick just killed me. I mean, the Wusukoramoa Koromoa was your guy. You liked him better than almost anybody. I mean, a lot of people liked him a lot he was one of your absolute top favorites and they pick him and we were like oh they got him the rich get richer and we get down and it's like togei and fields and i'm like andrew berry's reading our mind right he's he doesn't need to he's easily good enough uh but like you said at the top of this value on value right the only and and we talked about schwartz being good and serving a role like schwartz is the one pick in this lineup that i was kind of like eh little early for me not like i dislike him but like he it's a little early for me third round 28 but for the role for the role they just want understood the role but like that's the that's the biggest chink in the entire draft is a sort of a little bit early on a receiver in the third (laughs) like all the rest of the players literally top to bottom we loved and talked about multiple times in multiple formats and we didn't even get to Yet,
0: two of my favorite picks in their whole class that were their last two picks, Richard LeCount and Demetric Felton, who these are two guys where, I mean, talk about undervalued. And let's talk about LeCount for a second here individually, because he's kind of a special case. So he got into a motorcycle accident, uh, kind of ended his season at Georgia prematurely. Just really shitty situation. He was going to make a full recovery, but he was not fully back by the time he got to his pro day. And I remember watching those numbers where he was ran like a four, eight or yeah. something like it was like four, eight, five. He just and came out like, to compete and he ran this terrible there were, number. There was no way. There was no way you watch this dude on film that, that, yeah. that dude was running four eight. Cause he, I mean, he was tracking down Jalen Waddle in the open field. He's super smart, ultra aggressive. I mean, he, he is like my kind of safety. And not to say that I thought he was going to be like a top fifty pick, but I was like, man, you give me Richard LeCount like late day two, uh, yeah, fine. When you consider how fast he is, how smart he is, how tough he is, like he is like the quintessential Georgia Bulldog DB to me. And then he came out and run four eight, and I'm like, there's no fucking way that's legitimate. <laughs> and when he got picked, you know, it very quickly came out. You know, the, the Browns analytics department is one of the best. Like, they heavily, heavily invest in analytics. They heavily invest in their models and kind of augmenting traditional scouting processes with data, with, you know, the GPS tracking, which has been really big. And they kind of run their own models on GPS data. And they actually track Richard LeCount's acceleration and ability to cover ground with these GPS that he's wearing during games as the same as a guy that runs four or five flat. And I was like, that's the real number. Because when you watch him on film, it's not 4 8. He is a 4 yeah. 5 flat kind of safety, great ball skills, and is always in the right spot. And they got him in the fifth round. That's a great pick. It's a fantastic pick. And Dimitri Felton's the same way. I know he ran 4 6. He's not 4 6. You watch him in the Arizona State game, you watch him in the Stanford game. I was actually, uh, I was just DMing back and forth with. Um, uh, a stanford defensive lineman and like I, I brought up felton and he's like i'm glad he's gone because
2: <laughs> he was he was a handful the ultimate competitors compliment right real glad yeah. he's not in our division anymore bye he's oh, he's, he's well i mean you player. watched the senior bowl right you named a couple yeah. of games were on tape at washington state right good luck they had, they had nothing for him right they just <laughs> kind of they gave him yards and tried to hold everybody else down like you watch him at the senior bowl and it's like oh is he a runner is he a slot receiver doesn't matter he's a weapon and he toasted everybody playing receiver at the senior bowl right small guy super quick acceleration always plays what i would call over his feet right it's not wildly out to one side he's got great balance so he can go any way and he can go there very quickly and you know what you're getting he look he's undersized super fast can get open right and then he goes out and runs a crappy time and everybody goes well he's small and he ran a crappy time and you're like "Mm, (laughs) go back to the tape go back to any tape you want i don't care if it's senior bowl tape wazoo stanford like who you know he produced and lecount same way like lecount one of the things you said early on that i one of my favorite things about lecount is it's not just that he's rangy he is he's got a good size frame and that he has plenty of speed again sec competition very few people running wildly away from him you know some of the faster guys yeah they had steps on him but his mental processing got him there right that in my mind richard lecount is the eddie jackson memorial award winner of this draft <laughs> yep. right he's smart he's rangy he plays the ball well he tackles actually better than eddie did and he got That's injured fair. got injured late in the pre-draft process dropped him way off everybody's radar and turns out the browns get a value here whereas the bears got a value with eddie jackson but it's the same kind of setup happens to be the same position um but you watch the count in sec games over you know two two and a half years play after play after play being in the right spot breaking up passes hitting guys getting pbus dragging guys down you know sideline to sideline you look at that and he runs a 4-8 and everybody's like oh he's slow and i'm like no he ain't right most competitive conference in the country and he played at an extremely high level in a talented safety like in a talented secondary right everybody all got drafted everybody (laughs) from that secondary got drafted and he stood out right he was not the fourth or fifth guy in that secondary he was like the second or third guy in that secondary and you know both the corners went high i would say he's arguably right there at at number three when he's healthy, maybe number two, depending on how you like the corner. So to get that guy late in the fifth round, again, into a secondary where he actually, let's be honest, has very little chance of playing as a rookie because it's so loaded. We talked about that at the top. It's just the rich getting richer.
0: And I mean, not to be outdone by the draft class, the UDFA class wasn't bad either. And this is kind of one of those classes. I think we highlighted it, you know, early in 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 the spring or summer where it's like, it, if only one of these guys makes it or if it's the guy that we think is going to make it that makes it it's a successful UDFA class uh because Marvin Wilson from Florida State if he plays up to what he did in 2019 at a very down 2020 I don't really know what the reasons for that are 2020 was a weird season if he lives up to what he did in 2019 Marvin Wilson is not just going to make this roster he's going to get significant snaps because he was a really good player in 2019 The rest of them, you know, Keandre Thomas, Manny Ragumba, Romeo McKnight, Trey Harbison, uh, excuse me, Trey Harbison the third from Charlotte. I I see all them as more like camp bodies, maybe stashed from the practice squad. Marvin Wilson's the one guy where I'm like, he's he's gonna stick around, even in a a, a really deep D line class for them or D line rotation for them. um, I I think he kind of slides in naturally as like a backup to Andrew Billings, they
2: play very similarly. I could see him making this team. Absolutely. This is a guy that if you watch this 2019 tape or based on his 2019 tape, he was on preseason all America lists for first mm-hmm. team defensive tackle. We were talking about a round one DT, right? A guy that's clearly a DT, not a D end, right? Body type play style. This is a, this is a defensive tackle. And, certainly somewhat devalued unless you're Aaron Donald like, and I'm not saying he's Aaron Donald like, but this was the guy that was on preseason watch lists as one of the top two or three defensive tackles in the country based on his 2019. Now, 2020, he did not live up to that. We could be absolutely open and fair about that. He played at a much more average level throughout 2020. Was he terrible? I don't think he was terrible, but he was nothing special on the 2020 tape. You go back to 2019, it's like watching a different player. So if the Browns can figure out what that unlock is, if he was nursing an injury or there was something else going on, like you said, it was just a very odd year. We're gonna play, we're not gonna play. There's a lot of things going on in players and personal lives, right? If they figure out what the unlock is and they get Wilson to play anywhere near like what he did in twenty nineteen and they got him for quote unquote free as a UDFA. Winning. Like just Easy. flat winning.
0: Yeah. Easy. I God. It's front
2: office, man. They just get it done. They're closers. I I said right after the draft on Twitter, I said, better start better start priming the spot for that Andrew Berry statue. Because you're gonna be <laughs> you're gonna be putting it up pretty soon. Like he's from what we've seen in his first two years, he just I'm not going to say he hasn't missed, but the draft was like this last year too, right? It, oh, they, they were, I did a cl- I did a video on it after the 2020
0: draft where I highlighted my top three classes that I loved, and it was the Jets, the Broncos, and the Browns. That's right. Like pick after pick after pick. And, you know, he's not just great at, at picking guys. He's great at kind of augmenting and filling in gaps in free agency as well. And I, I thought he did a tremendous job. In free agency before this draft cycle, he brought in Troy Hill to be their new nickel for like four and a half million a year, which is uh, nickel is a very very important spot. And if you're getting a guy for like 25 percent of what a CB one's going for, when a nickel's going to play just as many snaps and have sometimes just as hard of a job, that's awesome. uh Jadavian Clowney, they brought in on a one year deal, only eight million. But, again, the, what he brings to a run defense, specifically, is insanely valuable. Uh, he's going to be Jeremiah owusu best friend because he's going to soak up so much attention. Uh, and owusu is just going to be able to run free and, and do what he does. Uh, Tack McKinley they brought in on another one-year deal. That one was kind of whatever for me, but the fact that it was like $4.2 point two not again, that's not a lot of money, and they had a lot of money to use. Is he a great player? I don't think he really lived up to his physical potential, but hey, you never know. Maybe he just needed a, a fresh new environment. But was I like wild about the signing? Eh, not particularly. But again, it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge investment. Um, the Damien Square signing for less than one point one, I thought was a really good value. Uh, but really, the the crown jewel was John Johnson bringing him over for the Rams. If they had known they were going to get Richard LeCount, would they still have done that signing? Maybe. But at the same time, you're getting a guy who's an elite. I'm talking like top five safety for $11 million a year. Somebody who plays the run extremely well, can play deep in the post. You can put him on a tight end in man coverage. Extremely versatile. Like I, I see him as, I don't even want to say like a poor man's Justin Simmons. He's like an upper middle class Justin Simmons. And you get him for $11 million a year? When you got other safeties signing for, like, 17, 18, that's what they're asking for? Like, hell yeah, that's a good value. I don't know why the Rams even let him out the door for that amount of money, but whatever. Cleveland's gain. Like, their secondary is loaded now, and John Johnson,
2: as I said, is, is the crown jewel. You realize that both those guys played in the same collegiate backfield, right?
0: Was John Johnson at BC at the same time as Justin Simmons? Yeah. <laughs> No shit. That was their safety duo was John Johnson and Justin Simmons.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of all those pictures you see of like the Georgia running back core or the Alabama running back core where it's like four guys that are now in the NFL was the running back room at Georgia or was the running back room at Alabama. Like Justin Simmons and John Johnson. Justin Simmons was a year before Johnson. Then Johnson came out and Johnson didn't get a ton of like he didn't have as much fanfare. Simmons had a higher profile in the draft, but people still, like NFL people were like, don't sleep on the other guy, right? Don't sleep on I, the other I guy. I didn't know
0: there was any overlap. I thought they were one after another. That's crazy.
2: How did anyone score on them? I mean, my well, God. Through the through the air, it's kind of crazy <laughs> because, again, you, the two guys you pull out of a hat are, you know, two of, like you said, probably the top five safeties in the NFL. So you said, would they have done it if they, you know, knew they were getting an account. And the answer is absolutely because of something you said earlier. They had a bunch of money, right? They were not one of the more cap strapped teams. And this guy comes up in free agency. He is clearly a leader at his position, right? He is talent, talent, talent. Now maybe a rookie pans out, maybe he doesn't. John Johnson is a known known, right? He has performed in the league at a high level and you get a value contract on him because your front office knows what it's doing and it doesn't overpay just to overpay or bid against itself. And you pull Johnson in for, like you said, 11 and a half, 12 million dollars. Like, yeah, you do that move 10 times out of 10 if you have the money, because yeah, your secondary is completely loaded at safety at corner, right? Doesn't matter. Somebody else has a big injury and they're like, where are we going to go? They go to Andrew Berry, and they say, look, you got stacks upon stacks of guys can i have one and barry says <laughs> sure give me a bunch of picks right because yeah, i remember have they, they got ronnie
0: harrison too harrison yeah, no, for safety
2: yeah that's the thing is like you look at their safety room and the guys their second pair of safeties could start for a lot of teams so andrew barry and his staff are are playing chess at this point everybody else is trying to keep up oh
0: man and it's going to be hard to follow that ej But we're going to try with the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are in—they used to be the Browns, in my opinion. You know, they used to be the—you look at the roster, and you're like, God, find the weakness. You know, Super Bowl contender every single year. Great coaching staff, great fun office, very few weaknesses. There's more questions, I think, with the Steelers going into this season than I can remember in a while. Um you know, what's what's Ben gonna look like coming back? We know he's slim he slimmed down a little bit, so maybe he'll he'll be able to move a little bit better, but is his arm gonna look better than last year? Who knows? You know, what's what's Matt Canada gonna look like in his first year as OC? Um, you know, what are, what are some of these young pieces at offensive line gonna look like? You know, it's been kind of a changing of guard there as well. You know, they lost a, a couple key guys on defense. Not that they didn't have some other young replacements that we don't like, but, I mean, God, it's hard to replace Bud Dupree. So there are some questions with this Steelers roster, and really the organization overall, that I'm not used to having, but I could still see them being in contention for the division because they're the Steelers. They don't have bad years. And I think it speaks to the greatness of Mike Tomlin Which, by the way, I I need to I need to pose this question. If Mike Tomlin retired tomorrow, Hall of Famer.
2: Ooh, excellent question. I don't never had a losing season. 15 years on the job, I would say had had to be has to be because of that consistency. And you said that consistency of, of GM and coaching staff. And that's frankly still there those aren't our questions to be clear like Tomlin you brought up Tomlin's record Kevin Colbert is again one of the most solid at refilling the cupboard and has been for a long time and is on the same page with Tomlin and that can't be underrated that that GM coach relationship so for for having more questions yes we absolutely have more questions about the Steelers this year than we typically have Does that mean that either one of us are going to bet against them with regularity? And the answer is, nope, nope. That's just dumb. Tomlin's proved that over and over again, that he's not going to rack up losing seasons. He doesn't have them. And every time everybody said, ah, the Steelers are dead, they're not, right? And the only way that I would be really, really down on the Steelers this year is if on, you know, drive one, play one, Ben's arm just fell off his body. Right. He went back to which pass. Which is a distinct it, possibility, possibility, by the way. <laughs> yes. He went back to pass and it just kept going backwards. And he was like, Well, I guess I'm done and I'm gonna, you know, drink beer with the other arm because, you know. And if that happened, the backup quarterback situation is not great. They have a they have a maybe uh at backup quarterback, which is better, I think, than what they had last year. Um, they I think they would still have a strong running game. Obviously the wide receivers are good, but like honestly Ben's powered this team for so long and if he comes out and just absolutely lays an egg in the first quarter of the season I'll worry a little bit more about their prospects because they're going to have to work harder for what they get um if he's out there playing at a even sort of medium level um that he's played over his career and you know Tomlin's still the coach and Colbert's still stocking the draft choices it's hard to bet against the Steelers more questions than usual absolutely Am I going to bet against him? Nah, not till the wheels fall. You know, not till the arm falls completely off. Which, well, I'm assuming
0: this is going to be Ben's last year. I thought that was last year, but we'll see. I, I, Well, here's the thing. They started out 11-0. Yep. And they have some young receivers, you know, Deontay, Claypool. Uh, you know, the offensive line, It's it's getting retooled, but I don't necessarily think it's... It's bad. I mean, they struggle in run blocking, but pass protection, I still thought they were fine. You know, you got Najee coming in. Like, there, there's weapons. And the defense is, I can't imagine the defense is going to be bad. I think, Ben, this is his last ride. Is it ideal supporting cast? Is it the best he's ever had? No. no. But it's still good. Yeah. And honestly, when it comes to the AFC... It's really more about attrition and staying healthy and just are you the healthiest team that is gelling in December or are you not? Because as we saw with the Chiefs, like they've hit some rough patches sometimes. Like, you know, when the offensive line got banged up and, you know, Pat was hobbled and everything like that. Like it's it's hard to win, even if you're the Chiefs, if you are just getting worn down by attrition, it's hard to win. When you're the Browns and, you know, Odell goes down and Teller goes down and Jed gets hurt and, you know, Chubb was gone for for 12 weeks and, you know, Baltimore, they just are finally starting to figure out their receiving core, but they're still thin. Like, Shaw Bateman gets hurt, they're right back to where they were last year. Like, their number one's going to be Sammy Watkins? Okay, good luck with that. Like, as long as the Steelers are healthy by the end of the year, and they just aren't completely shitting themselves, they have a chance. And I think that's what Ben recognized. And he's like, look, this is my last year. I'm gonna go all out on this new diet thing that he was doing. He's like, I'm gonna take care of my body this year. I'm gonna have a, a real good holistic off season. I guess for the first time ever, based on reports, like that this is the first time that Ben's like really focused on diet and you know, off season training, and this is a, a new outlook for him. But I think it's a new outlook for him because it's his last year, and he wants to be as healthy and as effective as he possibly can. Because this is it. I think regardless of what happens this season, whether they
2: go all the way and win it or
0: they bottom out and don't make the playoffs, this is it.
2: Yeah i i I wasn't joking when I said I thought it was it last year, and it wasn't because you know Ben's not a competitor. That is the antithesis of Ben Roethlisberger. Like he is. One of the reasons I think he'll go to the Hall of Fame is that, you know, yes, his accomplishments, but he is and always has been a relentless competitor, right? He's one of those guys that would stand in there and take shots and come right back and throw a big pass to hurt you. Like, he has always been a stick it to you kind of a guy. But last year, the physical limitations really started to show. It's a young man's game. Time catches up with anybody, everybody and because he's taken all those hits all those shots he is a very physical player he's run through many defensive linemen that stuff adds up i don't care how good your genetics are and he's been doing it for a long time and the arm started to look really really soft right by the end of the season he just couldn't throw it very far and we've we saw that with true Brees. we saw that with paid manning we've seen it with a lot of guys at the end of the line like late in the season, not even that late in the season, they lose the ability to drive the ball. Pittsburgh still plays outside, like all the hits have added up, the wind starts to blow and you just can't do some things from an offensive perspective, right? And I really thought he would kind of take stock in the offseason and say, "Uh, you know, but he's got another shot. He's got the same coaching staff i actually kind of like the offensive line it's a young offensive line but they've reloaded with some nice pieces we're going to talk about some from the draft they, they do have a shot and tomlin's going to keep coaching them and they're not going to lose games that they shouldn't for the most part one of those teams that quote unquote knows how to win right they're they're They know how to finish They're sort of have that veteran mindset. And they've certainly Steelers fans are going to listen to that and they're going to pitch me all kinds of crap. They're going to be like this game and this game and they should have won this game. Steelers fans are very used to winning and rightfully so. They've done a ton of it. Um, But I given all those things, if you said, oh, you know, are the Steelers going to be the worst team in the division Are the Steelers going to be out of it before the break? Like there's no way no way would i say those things it would be foolish given their record right unless ben comes out and just collapses and then they have to go to the backup quarterback situation which has not been a strong point for the steelers they yeah, have some that's... hope there you know they have a maybe renewed hope but uh it's it's not one of the best situations in the league so if ben goes down the calculus changes pretty significantly if he doesn't i'm not betting against him
0: well I I do want to bring up one thing uh with our our you know usual like front office and, and coaching staff review I kind of feel like bringing in uh you know Matt Canada to be the offensive coordinator was done deliberately to cater to what Ben is now because when you look at Matt Canada historically the offenses he's run like he's a guy you know he'll tailor the system to to the personnel he has but He also does have a preferred style where if he has the dudes to run it, it's I'm running 12 personnel, I'm running 21 personnel, I am pounding the rock, motions all over the place. I mean, they will do like three or four shifts before the ball is snapped to run fucking ISO because that's just what Canada likes. It is shifts and motions and running the ball. It's the weirdest combination I've ever seen. i'm just saying
2: i know it's true but i was really i was (laughs) mid-sip
0: like you you look at i think there was a clip from when he was at lsu and i swear to god they did four shifts and ran for two yards (laughs) yep two yards in a cloud of dust after what what is that what is that what is that what is that move them all around and then run it up the middle yeah but when it works, it works, you know. Sure. And and at at minimum, you know, all the motions and stuff, it's going to help Ben ID defenses at the line. And it'll help him out from that perspective. It'll, they might be able to catch some people in matchups against certain style of defenses where DBs don't travel. And, you know, instead of having, like, a nickel travel, they'll just roll somebody else down. And that's kind of a good way to, like, force, and, force an isolated matchup that you really like. But it's not going to be every week that that works for them. Really, their bread and butter, I think, is going to be – You're getting Fryermuth on the field. You're getting Ebron on the field. You're in 12 personnel, and you are running the ball with Najee Harris, emphasizing the quick game. And every once in a while, you're going to get Chase Claypool one-on-one down the sideline, and you see if Ben still has the arm to make it work. That's the offense. Is it going to be the sexiest thing in the world? No. Are they going to light the world on fire with 35-plus points a game? I'd be stunned. But they probably won't turn it over that much. And if they're not turning the ball over that much and they're at least effective with that defense, I think it can work. And I think Matt Canada specifically is going to run that style because of what Ben is now, which is an older, physically limited quarterback.
2: Yeah, I think there'll be a couple of weeks they top 35 because, again, they just have enough talent and and game breakers matter, right? Players play and they have some elite playmakers and those guys will get loose maybe in the same week, right? And they'll they'll crack 32, 35 points. Uh, but I'm with you that they are going to grind you down on offense and on defense. Uh, they are never an easy out on defense. Their defensive line uh, is built to hurt people, right? That is <laughs> absolutely what it does and what it has always done. They're going to play a very physical brand of football. You are not going to get a lot of free runs, they're going to be gap sound um have some real you know mink in the secondary is a an elite player if you don't want to talk about elite playmakers on offense he's an elite playmaker on defense and they're not going to need to score 35 every week you know 25 might be enough some weeks right can the can the defense hold the other team to three touchdowns i think some weeks it's going to be able to so uh, it's not going to be on ben to light up the scoreboard for this team to win it's built the team is built with a more balanced profile than that. And I I think they can manage that style of football. I think they're certainly set up to do it. We'll see if that morphs through injuries or what they're good at or whatever else throughout the year. But it certainly looks like the way they're set up, you know, this is not a quote-unquote lightning offense, right? This is. Just, <laughs>
0: Oh, you you're, said that so
2: kind. <laughs> you're you're going to get some shots. And look, Najee's going to break some because he's Najee and he's young, he's got fresh legs, and he's a tremendous runner. He He's going to get some. He, we might see some 50-yard touchdowns out of the Pittsburgh run game. Oh, we will. Um, we will yeah. for once. Yeah, for sure. And that's going to be a bit of a change. I'm sure Pittsburgh fans will be all about that. Um, but that's not what they're going to count on. Some teams count on that sort of quick strike ability and the ability to go 85 yards in a play. Like, that's not really the way the Steelers are built, like you said, with the addition of Canada, with the way the line is, with, um, you know, just knowing that Ben's not going to be able to heave it that far down the field. Now, you know, might you see some plays with 60 yards worth of yak? Yeah, you might. Are you going to see very many (laughs) 60-yard air throws, you know? Are you going to see very many 60-yard air throws? Mm, Not after the first third of the season you're not i would i would bet pretty heavily against that so it'll be a fantastic watch but they're not gonna pittsburgh's not gonna roll over for anybody especially not the folks in their division there is a a sort of deep deep rivalry in this division which I, i think is understated there's plenty of other rivalry games in other divisions but it feels like it goes almost every way in this division right that every week that you're playing a division opponent in the afc north you you're going to need the cold tub like it's people come to play
0: it's one of the only divisions where you feel like there's actual animosity yes in in division games you know like that there are some rivalries in other divisions where, okay you know like packers bears like there's there's some actual animosity um occasionally at least between some of the old guard with the vikings and packers you might see it every now and then um you know patriots jets I think there's a little bit of put but, like, literally every single matchup, every single one in the AFC North. I don't care if it's Ravens-Bengals, Battle of Ohio, Steelers-Browns, obviously Steelers-Ravens. They all hate each other, but that's what makes it such a compelling product. That's why, like, I would put AFC North games in primetime every single week if I could, because regardless of who's the worst and who's the best, I mean, God, we saw Joe Burrow last year you know, take the Browns to the fricking wire, you know, 30 seconds left They're They're forcing Baker to throw a dime to DPJ down the boundary and hit at the pylon for a game winning score. Like, and the Bengals were terrible <laughs> and they still took the Browns to the mat. So it's, Oh God, it's a fun division. It's such a fun division, but uh, why don't we get into the Steelers draft here after that kind of long preamble? Cause they, they did get a lot of players that I think you and I were, were very, very, high on, uh, in particular, Najee. Um, again, would I have taken a running back in the first round with Tevin Jenkins still on the board and their need at left tackle, in my opinion? No, but that's nothing against Najee as a talent. He w- he is a first-round talent. He just doesn't happen to play a position that has a, a, a high value um, relative to offensive line. Like, you know, it offensive line is... It's not mince words. Like, if you if you don't have a good offensive line, it doesn't really matter who's your running back. <laughs> and so I I kind of disagreed with the notion of, you know, if you're starting left tackle at the time going into the year, was Jakuma Okorafor and Tevin Jenkins on the board, I'm taking Tevin Jenkins 10 times out of 10. They disagreed with it. We'll see, I guess. But, again, it's nothing against Najee as a player. I just, given the other needs on the roster, I wasn't super hot about taking a running back. Uh, but Pat Fryermuth coming back in the second round, phenomenal player. You know, if Kyle Pitts wasn't Kyle Pitts, he'd be the TE1 in this class. In fact, I would put him right up there with a lot of the best tight ends to come out in the last five or six years. He's a very complete player. Uh, you know, he he plays a true Y and blocks his ass off, but he also can be a big slot for you and be dynamic down the field be a dynamic yak threat. I, I absolutely love him. I think he's honestly going to be a better player than Eric Ebron sooner than you think. I wouldn't be shocked if by the end of the year, he actually outsnaps Eric Ebron. Cause I just think he's a more versatile and better player. Uh, round three, they got Kendrick green ultra athletic interior offensive lineman out of Illinois has a, a, a very high level wrestling background. And you can tell, just with kind of how he manhandles dudes and, and, you know, manipulates leverage. He's not the biggest dude in the world, but he uses leverage very, very well. But he's very quick in space. So all the stuff they used to do with Pouncey, where they would, like, pull Pouncey out in space on, like, counter runs, which how many centers are pulling out in space on counter? Not a whole lot. Pouncey was one of them because he was super athletic. You can do that same kind of stuff with Kendrick Green. And so I think that's going to play well into the Najee pick in the first round. Uh, Dan Moore. Out of uh, Texas A&M, he is presumably going to be their competition for a core four at left tackle. Again, I would have liked for them to address that position a little bit earlier, but Dan Moore in the fourth round is still a pretty good value, and I really like him a lot. He, he's also um, their style of tackle. I would say just big, long, powerful. Not the best feet, but once he gets his hands on you, you're done anyway. So he he definitely kind of plays into the mold of what they want from an offensive lineman, which is length and power. Uh, Buddy Johnson, another Texas A&M linebacker, back to back Aggies, kind of undersized. He's like six foot two thirty, somewhere in that range. Where I mean, they already have some undersized linebackers, so I'm I'm not really sure if he plays a or if he fulfills a role that they really needed to be filled. You know, because when you look at at the rest of their depth chart, there like they've already got. You know Devin Bush and, and and Robert Spillane in the absence of Vince Williams who just retired, um, and I don't necessarily think that Buddy's going to come in and be the same kind of blitzer that Vince Williams was because he was one of the best blitzing linebackers in the league for a long time uh, before he just called it quits and, and hung up the cleats. So I, I don't I don't necessarily see him being a starter at linebacker on this team more so than just picking him for his special teams ability. Um, Isaiah Loudermilk. Uh, all name team in this class, by the way, uh, <laughs> Wisconsin DT. Again, he's kind of in the mold of the undersized, you know, quicker, not as big as the rest of their interior defensive line. So he does play a little bit of a different role. You look at Tewitt, you look at Cam Hayward, they're both over 300. Milk's probably like 275, 280. So he's, he's going to be more of like a nickel rush package kind of guy. Um, maybe they'll play him at some five tech in base, but I, I don't necessarily see him being – um, like a dominant, you know, run defender, uh, similar to like a Tuit or a Cam Hayward in that kind of role. He's he's really more of a nickel rusher for them. Quincy Rocher. Uh, this one's a little bit hard for me to project because I don't, I don't know how I how I feel about him standing up or potentially standing up as an edge rusher. And his skill set is so different than Bud Dupree, who they just lost. I kind of like uh, Alex Highsmith. Or Melvin Ingram to start because they just signed Ingram as well, and then Roche maybe getting ten snaps a game somewhere around there. I just I that was a pick that I was kind of like okay I can understand the talent fit in certain defenses, and this one I was kind of like uh, eh, I don't know like I think he's so much better with his hand in the dirt, and I don't know how often he's going to actually get to do that here. Either way, I like Highsmith, I like Ingram. They're not hurting at the position, but the Rocher pick was interesting to me. Um, and then Trey Norwood from OU in the seventh round, I thought was a really good value. I like him a lot. And then Presley Harvin, the third. No relation. He's a, a punter, Ray Guy Award winner from Georgia Tech. He's a punter, so I didn't watch him, um, but he's a Ray Guy Award winner. So how bad can he be, right? There's my scouting report
2: on a punter. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah back to Roche I was higher on Roche than you were Uh, we spent a lot of time watching the Miami defensive line this year three guys that were drafted very different talents all of them I thought Roche was pretty well rounded and had his games not necessarily that difference maker that you bring in but to me he fits that Steelers profile a little bit more than he does for you he reminds me a lot of Bud Dupree when Bud Dupree was drafted out of Kentucky yep so when Dupree mm. came in, he was not the player that they just lost, right? Yeah, the run defense was a lot
0: different because now it, he's one of the best run defenses, run defenders on the edge took in the league. Him,
2: and people, this is this is the short memory thing, right? Or the recency bias, if you want to call it that. Bud Dupree morphed into a really good football player. I was high on Bud Dupree coming out of Kentucky. He did not play well his first year and a half, almost two years in Pittsburgh, right? he underperformed and people said oh is this a bust right is he ever gonna be a thing right and then he got it the light came on the coaching hooked up maybe he did something different with his body i'm not sure but suddenly it was aha this is what we spent the pick on very few teams have that kind of patience to wait in year three to see a full blossoming after like a pretty slow upward curve And when he was drafted, he was more athletic than Roche, just out of the box, but he wasn't a whole lot more effective. He was in that um, fits and spurts, right? And the high spots were incredibly high and very bright. And the inconsistency was what you wanted to see disappear. And it did eventually. And he became a very forceful run defender and a very well-rounded player. Roche reminds me a little bit of the Bud Dupree coming out of Kentucky. Not quite as athletic, certainly. But in terms of effectiveness, and again, inconsistency, you want to see that consistency. And if I'm going to give somebody the benefit of the doubt on picking a defensive line player that maybe doesn't have the highest pedigree and getting the very most out of them, Pittsburgh's going to be among the top two or three teams in the league that I'm going to go I'll wait and see because you've you've earned it, right? You've, you've garnered that trust. Um, Trey Norwood, a great, versatile player that can do a couple of things for them. I'm not exactly sure where they're going to play him. I think they're probably going to play him at nickel. I think he's a little bit stiff for that. Um, I love the phrase that Matt Bowen coined on our show of slot safety, right? Mm-hmm. I think Trey Norwood could be a pretty good slot safety. Buddy Johnson wasn't my favorite player. Um, Craig Stout kansas city sports network our buddy really liked buddy johnson he was a guy that he was higher on than i was but i'm with you I, he's not a starter in my mind and look as a fourth rounder late in the fourth round down the compensatory picks you wouldn't expect him to be uh it would say something about your depth chart if that guy was slotted in to start from day one um But Kendrick Green, I love. Kendrick Green is amazing. And I think, again, in this system with the guy he's replacing and how they understand to use the position with his traits, I think this one's going to be a a Kevin Colbert hit, right? Just a a straight-up match for their system, what they require, what his skills and his background are. I I really low-key, late in the process, came to like Kendrick Green quite a lot as a guy that didn't have buzz. Fryermuth, i'm with you i was never a huge ebron guy um he's certainly continued to progress and get a little bit better um but he's a different kind of player and firemouth i think is more well-rounded and i i i wouldn't take your bet if you're betting against me that he's going to outsnap ebron by the end of the year because i think you're right i think he is going to outsnap ebron by the end of the year and Najee, again we talked about that at the top great player great fit well-rounded It's going to be an amazing stealer uh, fits their style for sure. They want to run the ball hard. This is not a team that wants, you know, shifty jitterbugs outside. You know, it's not the Niners. This is not the Niners run game, right? North-South. <laughs> yeah, they they want to hit people hard. They want their offensive linemen to hit people hard. And they want the back to follow that up and hit somebody really hard. Like, that's why Connor was such a good runner for them because that was his style. Najee is much more talented than that at a base level, um, so he's going to break more of those. um So, a very I would call this a very Steelers draft, right? And the Steelers draft is typically one I look at and I go, ah, I don't like that as much as some others do. But uh, again, with their history, I'm not going to bet against them because they'll take talent that maybe other teams aren't as high on and do really good things with them at certain positions. Definitely wide receiver, definitely you know defensive line we talked about, and interior offensive line they've been pretty successful through the draft and free agency guys they've imported at finding their guys guys that fit their system do the things they want to do whether or not they're the highest profile or the biggest name guys um and i think kendrick green lines up with that really well and i can see him being a long time very productive stealer um, you know, clearing the way for Najee and and Pat Fryermuth giving a great option to Ben or whoever succeeds him as a sort of intermediate thing. If we're not going to run the ball and we're not going to go deep to Claypool, like find Pat Fryermuth and I think he's going to fill that role very very well. I know it sounds sacrilegious, but every time I watched Pat
0: Fryermuth, I was like, that's very Travis Kelsey. Now Travis Kelsey, one of the greatest tight ends of all time, in you mean arguably- Kelsey? Kels. Yeah, okay. First of all, we need to talk about <laughs> that for a second. First of all, what the fuck? We've been saying his name wrong for how long has he been in the league? Nine so years is, now? So has everybody except for Even his, he, apparently his head coach and his quarterback were the only two that were saying uh, it right. No, you watch him on Sunday Night Football, he would say, Travis Kelsey. So it's like, okay, well, was maybe he just he's, leaning into it? Like Maybe he's just trolling <laughs> everybody. I don't, I don't know. Anyways. That killed me.
2: Yeah, I I had to bring
0: doesn't Jason say I think Jason says Kelsey as well.
2: That's what I immediately thought of was, wait, how's his brother pronounce it? If he was Jason Kels and it was Travis Kelsey, I I would have my questions about. So how do you say your family name? Uh, But as far as I've ever heard it, and maybe they're just too nice (laughs) and just going along with it. But I. I swear I've heard Kelsey for both of them for their entire careers. So it was a bit weird to say him, have him say, well, you know, I, you know, people started saying it and I just kind of didn't correct him. And I was like, for a decade, that seems odd. <laughs> well, it's
0: kind of like, uh, you know, Jason Oway, where he just, he went by Jason right forever because he didn't want to correct people who couldn't pronounce Odafe, which by the way, Odafe, not that hard to pronounce yeah of, of all but, the
2: names that we end up pronouncing in the draft business like sure bring it on odafe but i i guess long. he
0: was just he was getting a lot of shit for it and so he just said okay my name's right. jason and then he got drafted and he's like you know what no my
2: name's odafe right call like, me i my love name. that i love yeah. that call me my name i yeah I'm, I'm with it and kelser kelsey i don't care just jason if you want to you want to ping us on twitter and say which one you prefer we will call you that um we we don't want to be calling people what they don't want to be called in in any way but um yeah i i don't know that that kelsey is my comparison for him but i i do get pretty strong vibes from one of the guys i compared him to and again we've talked about this over and over again comps are fraught with with problems Uh, but one of the guys that came to mind for me when i watched him was heath miller Ooh, that's an interesting one yeah and again it's different parts of his game you're always with the comp grabbing certain things that remind you but there were a lot of plays in his tape um, early on in fireman's tape where i was like "Uh," you know this is pre-being drafted by the steelers i was like "Uh, it kind of reminds me of you know that part of his game reminds me of heath miller i think in certain ways he's more dynamic as a receiver like you said when he goes outside certainly when he goes deep to the corner uh, there's a there's a sort of another level I, I don't necessarily think heath was as good as pat is in those situations but there's a lot of stuff middle of the field those block and roll routes right where he'll start off and seal and then slip and you know cross the middle very square target uh, in a good way. Uh, I don't mean like square wheels. I mean like square to the quarterback, yeah. um, good hands, big frame. Like he, he has a, I, there were several times in Pat Fryman's tape. I was like, well, I, you know, if you're trying to, trying to put a guy in, in a frame of reference, I was like, eh, it's very Heath Miller esque, right? More dynamic to the corners and and deeper down the field, a little bit more speed, I think, but I don't know. I'd have to look up, heath miller's testing numbers before i said that definitively but there are some definitely uh with the physical elements close to the line yeah there are some reminders there of his game and then he gets drafted by the steelers and i was like well there there you go <laughs> and i'll
0: bet you early in his career every time he catches a football you're still gonna hear steelers fans in the in the crowd saying Heath. and you know why i know that because I just went to a Steelers game a couple years ago, and every time Vance McDonald caught a football, you heard Steelers fans saying, yee.
2: Apparently, Heath and tight end are synonymous in Pittsburgh. It's like, North oh, China.
0: white white tight end caught the ball. That's Heath Miller. It's, who cares? He retired a few years ago. No, that's Heath Miller.
2: We don't want to learn a new <laughs> chant. We're very traditional here. Yeah, uh, no, it's fine. Uh, no, Steelers I think Friermuth is going to be a great tight end for them. He is yeah. a true two-way player. And like you said, if there wasn't this other guy from Florida that's all world, everything, and maybe not just a tight end. Frymouth is TE1 in this class, like clearly. Yeah,
0: not, not even close. Not even close. Uh, why don't we go over their UDFA class? A couple interesting guys. Uh, we got Shakur Brown, corner out of Michigan State. Calvin Bundage, the linebacker from Oklahoma State. Uh, Rico Bussey, might have been Busey, but I think it's Bussey, the wide receiver from Hawaii Not super explosive, like in terms of down the field speed, but in terms of short area quickness, I really like what I saw from him. Uh, Mark Gilbert, the corner out of Duke. Isaiah McCoy from Kent State. Donovan Steiner, no, Stinner? Steiner from Florida. Again, when you're watching all 22, I don't get clarification on pronunciation sometimes. Uh, And then Lamont Wade from Penn State, who's another one of those kind of, you know, slot safety types, which the Steelers are already overflowing with nickel safeties. So. I, I don't know about him, you know, finding a spot on the He'd team. He better but be good at special teams. Let's put it that they, way. They know what they like in safeties. They they like safeties. It's like either you can have extraordinary range in the deep post or you cover in the slot or both. And he can at least do one of those things. Uh, and then Jamar Watson, the linebacker out of Kentucky. So not, not any one name that really stands out to me, you know, kind of like Cleveland with Marvin Wilson or, you know, a couple of the Ravens guys we'll talk about in a little bit here. But I I think at least a couple of them have a shot to stick, um, at least for special teams ability and or, uh, you know, practice squad, just because they kind of fit a player profile that they like to develop. Mine in particular being Lamont Wade and Rico Bussey. I think that they have a shot to kind of stick around the organization. Uh, What say you anybody stick out on on this list for you?
2: For me, it's about the corners, and it's because the the depth chart at corner in Pittsburgh is is not as solid as some of the other places, like wide receiver that we've talked about. Uh, and you get two guys with draftable grades. Shakur Brown and Mark Gilbert both had draftable grades. Mark Gilbert, there was some question about whether he was healed up from injury, came back, had a very good pro day, uh, and basically kind of slammed the door on the, oh, he's, he's not good enough physically debate. Um, Shakur Brown is more... I would say developmental, but super athletic and a lot of flashes. And again, if we talk about path, the playing time, you get a couple of corners that both had draftable grades. Both those guys had late round grades uh, for me and many other people. And you don't have to spend a pick for whatever reason, if it's the worry about Gilbert's injury and, you know, maybe some other teams weren't sold, um on his durability or anything else but you get two guys that have talent uh showed their talent in college well enough to be certainly starters on their respective programs and they come into a depth chart that is not absolutely stacked up we talked about you know if they if these guys were drafted in cleveland i would say very little hope of even sticking on the team because that secondary is so so deep here looking at the steelers cornerback depth uh you know are they going to be starters no uh you know do they have a chance to make the the sort of 90 man roster yeah uh the 53 hmm maybe does one of them end up on the practice squad? if so, that's a win. again, you didn't pay any draft capital for either one of these guys. so you get them in camp, you see how they fit you see you get a, you, your medical staff gets a better chance to look at them, which again was super limited this year um, that that to me is is a pretty good get both organizationally from a need standpoint and from a value standpoint. And Rico Bussi I like. Uh, he was an intriguing guy, but he does come into a stacked depth chart in wide receiver. His chances of making the roster, uh, I would say fairly low, unless he is a special teams ace. Now, could he be on the practice squad as a replacement? I think that's more likely. But the chance he actually makes the starting roster as a, what, fifth or sixth wide receiver? like It would be prob- six, yeah. Probably yeah. not.
0: Uh, why don't we look at the veteran free agents they brought in, um a couple guys in terms of offensive line depth that I want to talk about Rashad Coward Steelers fans I'm just telling you now if he's on the field pray for Ben and also pray for Najee. pray for all of them actually (laughs) when Rashad Coward's on the field bad things happen pray that you do not get to that point fair warning just saying Tyson Aluoglu was the big one for me in terms of retaining him one of the top three nose tackles in the league indisputably. Uh, I know he's 34, but nose tackles is one of those positions that kind of tends to age gracefully, weirdly enough. Um, and for, you know, five and a half million dollars for two years for a top three nose tackle. Hell yeah. Great deal. Uh, Chris Warmley. They retained as well for another two-year deal. They brought back Cassius Marsh. They, they did a, a really good job of kind of like house cleaning in terms of the, the players that were dirt cheap, that were still effective rotational pieces and or role players that did a pretty good job of keeping around. They did sign back Vince Williams, who I mentioned retired. He just said, you know what, I, I can't do it again. I'm out. Injuries kind of piled up for him a little bit. Only had like a seven or eight year career, but I, I thought he was a very effective player for them. So we'll see we'll see what they do without him. Because again, he was one of the better blitzing linebackers in the league and they don't have him uh, having to fulfill that role anymore. it will probably have to fall on Devin Bush, I imagine. Uh, Miles Killebrew they brought in from Detroit on a one-year deal. Uh, Juju they brought back on a one-year deal. That was kind of surprising because I think we all just assumed Juju was gone. And, uh, you know, there was word that he had interest from the Chiefs who were going to pay him at least at or potentially even above that number for $8 million. which for me, you know, if I'm a mercenary wide receiver looking for a one-year deal and the Chiefs come calling and I have the chance to put up crazy numbers with Pat Mahomes and then go cash in the next year, I would have taken that. So uh, again, it's great for the Steelers to get it back one year, $8 million. I, I kind of feel like he might have put his future earnings maybe a little bit in jeopardy there, turning down that offer from the Chiefs. But again, hey, from a team perspective for the Steelers, that's great for them. Uh, and then last, they brought in Tyler Simmons on a one-year uh, kind of you know camp body deal at wide receiver as well. He's, he's another one of these guys that's going to be competing with the Rico Bussies of the world for wide receiver five, wide receiver six. But overall, what did you think of the free agent, uh, retentions and free agent additions for the Steelers.
2: Largely, again, this is a very, you can call it a Kevin Colbert class at this time, or a, you know, a Steelers class, right? Uh, they're going to get their guys, guys like Josh Dobbs, that really don't have value to other teams, right? You're talking about a 26-year-old quarterback that you signed for a million dollars. Like, nobody signs for a million dollars. At least at quarterback, not a quarterback, right? So yeah. Yeah. That third string backup is four million bucks these days. So, um, but again, uh, Josh Dobbs wants to be there. I know they like him. Um, we actually got to see him at the Senior Bowl when we were down there. He was hanging out with the scouting staff. Um, you know, you said house cleaning. I'm like hole patching, right? They're they're <laughs> just grabbing guys that are values that are like, yep, bring them in. It's competition. It's not going to break our bank right fills out the roster uh gives us one particular skill with with try turner i think it's a lot about experience right we want a guy at interior guard we're not gonna start him but we want a guy that's played a bunch and even if he's not playing at a high level we're gonna ask him to execute a few things and we know he can do that because of largely experience so it you know no splashes i think juju was probably the biggest name in play or flux play and and i wonder what his market was because it sure seemed like if he had maybe come out last year, right? His well, it was reported like the Chiefs this. were gonna. It was
0: reported the Chiefs were gonna give him eight million.
2: Which, which yeah, is, that's why I was I, thinking like, I, what are you doing? Like, I wonder about the veracity of that though, because it, well, maybe he just for same money. Maybe he said, I just don't want to move. I you never know. I certainly would have made the same choice. You would have been. Gone and played to pat for the year, that's gonna maximize potential. But like Juju's profile, if you think back to a year ago's free agency cycle, so now you know, a year and four months ago. If he had been a free agent at that point, he would have been commanding a lot more money.
0: People were talking about him getting like 17, 18 million a year. Right. Like
2: this is where Juju was. And then throughout 2020, he really kind of became less and less of a factor less and less of a feature uh until he was really sort of running like the underneath stuff and that was pretty much it And it wasn't necessarily the limitation of ben like that's all he was running was like sort of the third wide receiver route stuff and you just didn't you know i watched all those games and it used to be like juju and then whatever else happened even though they had lots of other wide receivers and then it was whatever Claypool was doing earlier in the year. And then as Deontay Johnson came back a little bit healthier was what he was doing. And like, you'd look down and it's like, Juju got like three catches. Juju got like four catches and you know, he got paid commensurately, but it's just one of those things where your free agency does not time up with that big year. If it had been a year earlier, he would have made probably almost double. Uh, So yeah. He had like 1400
0: yards. It was was a crazy productive year. So he was also the big slot when Antonio was outside Totally you agree know, doing Antonio Brown things. And then they wanted to to see, OK, maybe he can be, you know, that X receiver outside that Antonio was. And he just didn't didn't have the same juice.
2: And, and all of a sudden another, they
0: got Yeah, they got Claypool. Yeah. And we got a better
2: draft it. class. Right. So Claypool was last year and in, in, in a loaded historic, arguably historic wide receiver draft class. That was last year. He comes up for free agency this year. There was another very good loaded wide receiver class, and GMs mm-hmm. around the league are starting to say, "Well, I'm not going to pay Juju 12, 14, 16, 17 million dollars a year. I don't need to because even if he walks, I can go get somebody in the second round or even the third round next year to replace that production, and it's going to cost me like two million bucks." Right. And I'm going to have anywhere between three and five years worth of control when I get him. And the most it's going to cost me is about what I paid him here. So I'm going to pay him as almost like a placeholder. I'm just going to draft again because the supply of wide receivers has changed. Right. You don't have to go to the wall for those. I would say Juju is a second tier or, you know, borderline second, third tier guy. You don't have to go to the wall for those. There's not that kind of scarcity anymore. So he ended up with what I think is kind of a fair contract, which is surprising given where he was a year ago. But, you know, that's the way the NFL world turns.
0: Well, it's like the Colts, you know, people were like, oh, man, as T.Y. ages, what are they going to do at receiver? It's so hard to replace T.Y. Hilton. Michael Pittman, second round. There you go. Boom. Done. Yeah. Problem solved. And we could do it again this year if we wanted to. And so. we could do it again this year. Oh, Zach Pascal, He's good. There you go. Problem solved. We have receivers. It's not that hard. <laughs> like, not anymore. Not anymore. Not There's so hard. many. Uh, why don't we move on to Cincinnati here? Um, probably the... <laughs> I don't want to say that they're in the basement of the AFC North. Because I think that's... That makes it sound like they're worse than they are. They mm. just happen to be in a very, very loaded division. But I do think that there are some positive things to look forward to in the Bengals' immediate future and in the distant future when you look at Joe Burrow and what you and I think think that he's eventually going to be. Um, they just happen to be in a really, really, really loaded division that's, that's going to beat them up this year. I, I think that's a fair thing to say. I would,
2: I would classify them as a team with a puncher's chance. I mean, right. like I said, they took Cleveland to the mat last year,
0: and that right. was with I,
2: a, a worse roster. I'm with you when you say basement. Like they're they're arguably fourth in their division. Does that yeah. mean that they're bad or coming off the mat? And the answer is no. This is a team that could win on almost any given week against most teams. They've got to play a good game to do it, but it's not like, oh my God, you got beat by Cleveland. Like at this point, or you got beat by Cincinnati, right? At this point, you're gonna be like, no, nope, Burrow's developing. T. Higgins is really pretty good. It makes him like, okay, yeah, no, like you yeah. didn't play your best game, and Cincinnati beat you, flat out beat you. So team of the punchers chance, I think, is a little bit better than basement because they're good team. That's rising but they happen to be below three other very loaded teams
0: yeah it's not like we're talking about the Texans here where it's like <laughs> good god. we try not know? to we really we try, not try to try not to pretend they don't exist for my mental health sure. uh, why don't we get into the uh, front office and coaching review here for the Bengals Duke Tobin going on year 23 can you believe it already his career with the Bengals can drink now. It's insane. <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he's director of player personnel, which is de facto GM for the Bengals. He's been in that role forever. Um, you know, he was Marvin Lewis's right-hand man, and now he's taken over an even more active role in personnel. Um, I mean, honestly, I think he's done some good things. For the Bengals, ever since Marvin left, and and again, there there kind of was that void because Marvin was the end all be all when he was there. Everybody knew that he was the decision maker. He made all the picks. Obviously, he had full roster control, and you know Duke was was the guy who ran everything. But Marvin had the the decision power, and now Duke's had the decision power for a few years now. And I again, you know, you're you're picking up guys like. Joe Burrow, you know, making the correct pick, even if it's first overall, like some people say, like, oh, it's it's easy to do when you have the first overall pick. There's been a lot of bad first overall picks. He didn't mess it up. I give him credit for that. You know, Jamar Chase is, is on the board. He didn't mess it up. He took Jamar Chase. I give him credit for that. Just because a pick is quote unquote easy doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, give praise for it. So I like what he's done in his few years that he's had more control. Uh, Zach Taylor. In year three with the Bengals, kind of iffy on him, but we'll see. You know, I I will give him the benefit of the doubt because again, his young quarterback got hurt. The roster was in a terrible position. They're slowly but surely building depth, but I'm very much in wait and see mode with Zach Taylor. I think he's got honestly this year. As unfair as that may sound, that it's it needs. I need to see something this year because there's a lot of young coaches in the league with, in my opinion, worse situations that showed more, I got to see it this year. Like, they need to not just beat other bad teams. They need to rip off some wins against good teams. They need to rip off some wins against Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, the other AFC powerhouses they're going to face. Like, it, it can't just be, oh, we're, we're the best of the bottom feeders. Like, nah. We, if you want to be a mid-tier team and show progress, you have to – be a threat to the best. So hopefully we see that this year from them. Uh, Brian Callahan, also in year three, offensive coordinator for them. And then uh, Lou Anarumo, defensive coordinator for year three. And I know the Bengals defense has been in a sorry state, but again, I feel like that's been more of a talent issue than anything else. They are slowly but surely rebuilding that talent base to, uh, to what it was, you know, probably like 2015 or so, is I remember when that, that Bengals defense was was kind of stacked at all three levels, like 2014, 2015, around then. Like prime young Andy Dalton years where you had, you know, you had young Gino. perfect was a good linebacker, Pac-Man was there, they had some good safeties, like uh Dunlap, you know, was in his prime. The it's the talent level for Cincy's defense is is a far cry from what it was back then, but they're getting there. So again, I'm I'm very much in wait and see mode with the coaching staff, but I do like Duke Tobin as director of player personnel, and um, hopefully we see progress this year, but I guess we'll find
2: out. Uh, we're going to have to take issue as we go through this because uh, I don't think anybody's going to take issue with Chase. I mean, there's you could, right? But it's hard to argue against what you ended up with, right? You ended up with Jamar Chase, like you said, got a great player, and that's what you're trying to do when you're at the top of the draft. Fifth overall, you want a blue-chip player that's going to bring impact. Think it's hard to argue that Jamar Chase is not going to do that. But we had one (laughs) resonant (laughs) repeating complaint last year with the Bengals, and it ended up hurting hurting them extremely badly. Right? We knew that their offensive line was in shambles. And they patched it together and mailed it in and sort of refused to make multiple moves that they could have with the people's cast off they should have been doing everything they could and then some to try and build that lineup but they really didn't they took a somewhat laissez-faire approach to ah, we're good enough and you know it can happen to anybody but it happened to their number one all overall quarterback and he got his knee caved in because it took a big beating for the first 11 weeks that he played and then they missed And that was the end for Joe Burrow. So the focus was definitely on offensive line, right? You have your chance to go get a playmaker, but you need offensive linemen. You have maybe one or two that you're going to keep for sure. And the others need (laughs) replacing, quite frankly, or at least very strong competition. And in round two, pick 14, they do get a tackle, but not necessarily. I think the tackle that a lot of people were hoping for, they get Jackson Carmen from Clemson, nothing against Jackson Carmen. I think he's a fine player. I think there are better players available. And then they wait again until late in the fourth compensatory picks to pick up another offensive lineman, another tackle Deontay Smith from East Carolina. Who's incredibly talented physically, but not quite there. Not a guy. You're probably going to plug it. Well, not a guy. Hopefully if you like Joe Burrow, that you're going to plug in as a starter right away. Um, So while the draft, uh, you know, started off strong with Jamar Chase, we wanted to see (laughs) sort of early and often offensive line picks after that. And we saw "Mm, maybe one that people could take issue with and then maybe one later. And I know there's some Cincinnati fans that are like, yeah, Jamar Chase is awesome. But how is this going to be different than last year?
0: I'll tell you how it's going to be different in defense of Duke Tobin. Sure. I did not expect to say those words today, but in defense of Duke Dublin.
2: But here we are.
0: So the issue when Joe Burrow's knee got imploded in on itself was not at tackle. Michael Johnson, the left guard, or Michael Jordan, I should say, the left guard gave up that sack. And I think when you look at their depth chart going into this year, Jonah Williams, not a bad tackle. (laughs) I think he's like, God, is it war is it wrong to say he's like the new Eric Fisher where it's like, yeah, he's fine. <laughs> he's fine. I, I don't think you know? it's wrong.
2: I, I think that's one of the two players you're you're keeping on that line, right? they're they're, they're with all the other problems you have, there's no reason to jettison Jonah, right? He, and he's, so like taking he
0: Pene taking Sewell and putting him at left tackle, okay, but you were already fine at left tackle. The problem was, Michael Jordan at guard, getting his ass beat and getting Burrow hurt. Well, Jackson Carmen is going to play left guard for them. And I think he's a, a very good guard prospect. You know, at tackle, you could nitpick some things here and there. But remember, he played hurt for most of the year. Um, but, you know, you go back to when he was healthy playing against Chase Young the year before that. I thought he acquitted himself pretty well. And I think he's going to be a good fit at left guard for them. So to me, they did address the problem. That got Burrow hurt. It just wasn't with the sexy, flashy, if an offensive lineman could be flashy, pick in the top 10. And so you're getting an amazing receiver prospect to uh-huh. pair with your other two amazing receivers. Like your top three are Shamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd. Are you kidding me? It's the best receiving trio in the division, one of the best in the conference, in my opinion. You know, you got Jonah Williams coming back healthy. You got Jackson Carmen, who I think is going to be a much better guard than Michael Jordan. Uh, you got Quentin Spain, who in the past has been a pretty good guard. You bring in Riley Reef to play right tackle, but that's like the one pain point where it could be like, eh, okay, maybe eh. but it's still better what they had last year. Yep. So I, I think I think that, you know, Reef playing while well, you develop Deontay Smith, who you and I both like out of East Carolina. Um, God he needs to put on weight, but we liked him. I don't think that they're in that bad of a spot offensive line wise. And I think when you have a, a blue chip of all blue chip receivers and you can still get offensive line depth later because it was such a loaded offensive line class. I understand why they did what they did. And to be perfectly honest, I agreed
2: with it. Yeah, I don't mind the chase pick at all. I don't. I don't want to say that it was, you know, it wasn't a good approach to offensive line because you didn't pick it at six. I'm i I'm almost never going to say that unless it is a, you know, one player class, which is pretty rare. And this was certainly not that year for offensive line. It's more about what they did later. And, and I look at another situation, which is completely different. But, you know, the Chiefs suffered in the Super Bowl because their offensive line was beat up. It was attrition, you know, and. Pat had to run for his life for the Super Bowl. And they said, nope, never doing that again. And they took the shotgun approach, right? They drafted and they brought him in a free agency. They brought Kyle Long out of retirement. They're they like, give me all the offensive line prospects. Like, just give them all to me. We're never doing that again. And to me, that's the level of what I think a lot of Cincinnati fans wanted. And I can't really argue with, given the depths of their offensive line play. They have some good offensive line players but the, their offensive line play overall burrow just ran for his life for you know probably eight of those 11 weeks that he played like he he just got pounded he had very little time it's amazing that he put up the stats that he did with the amount of protection that he had um so <laughs> air, to air me quotes protection yeah 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 it to me it felt like they should have taken that all in approach we are fixing offensive line free agency draft udfa other teams cuts like we don't care we're gonna bring in enough guys that we're not gonna have this particular problem again still go ahead pick jamar chase but then literally just put the hammer down and do everything and to your point they were they were selective they were specific they like carmen at guard okay i think he's definitely better than the incumbent especially if he's healthy um You know, but retool that thing and give yourself some options because again, if you do it with a limited number of choices or put a limited number of resources to them, we all know the hit rate's not perfect. So maybe, you know, maybe Carmen's a bust, right? I'm not saying he is or he isn't, but if he is, what do you have behind him? Oh, (laughs) we got the same
0: guy who got we're right back to where we
2: were and you know you're always an injury away so it felt like they needed to go to that extra level that kind of Kansas City did where they just said give me all the give me all the pieces right we're never doing this again we're going to load it up because we know what we've got and I think it is a similar situation is Burrow Mahomes no do they need to protect Burrow like he's Mahomes for their franchise yeah you picked him first overall he is your hope going forward Build a wall. Look at, you know, look at what speaking of Penny Sewell, like he went to the Lions. Look at that Lions line, right? They don't have the quarterback yet, but they built a young, very impressive wall over the last two years. For so whoever comes in at quarterback, if somebody replaces Goff, is gonna have the benefit of the doubt of a very talented offensive line and some depth. I, I feel like Cincinnati kind of went, yep, we're gonna pick one. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, well, that's it like keep going and they didn't so i'm not going to argue overall but we'll go through the rest of the draft class um joseph osai from texas very talented defensive well uber athletic talented defensive end despite what you said about him in one of your videos titles um cameron, cameron sample from tulane defensive end who we both like uh in a different role he's not Osai, he's more of uh he has some pass rush flash to him but not anywhere uh near like a player like osai does from an athletic standpoint but a good player that we both liked thought was a bit underrated tyler shelvin <laughs> from lsu <laughs> uh we talked about nose tackles aging gracefully. i hope he does tyler shelvin for those of you that don't know was listed generously on the low side at 365 playing for lsu there's no goddamn way No, he was much bigger than that. That is generously on the side. Tyler Shelvin is a mountain of a dude, and he has one job, which is to stand in the middle and say, "This three-yard wide box is mine, and you can't have it." I don't care if you put one guy, two guys, go ahead, put three guys. I'm I'm just gonna lean in, and you're not going anywhere. You're gonna have to go around, and the other guys are gonna have to clean up because I'm holding up two or three guys. That's Tyler Shelvin. He is an absolute load, and they are gonna plop him in the middle and say have at it um, tyler Deont- shelvin hasn't been 360 since fifth grade like <laughs> come on uh he is a he is a massive human being uh deontay smith from east carolina we talked about him incredibly athletic has all the tools right he's not filled out he hasn't figured out how to put them all together but is incredibly athletic out there and has an immense frame wingspan 80 whatever <laughs> 80 yeah. 80 80 much i'll say on his wingspan um you know is developmental prospect but a good one because going back to bill parcells planet theory there's only so many people on the planet of that size and skill like you go get them and you see if you can work it out um evan mcpherson from florida place kicker wait a minute fifth round fifth pick place kicker okay all right figured they needed him Trey and Hill. kickers the are from... people too ej i know i know fifth <laughs> round a little early but there you go um trey hill the center from georgia i i like trey hill georgia puts out you know He's typically good. very good offensive line props i thought trey hill was really solid and where they got him six pick in the sixth round felt like a good value and that to me sort of felt like okay now you're now you're stacking pieces that you can start to develop. Again, you're not going to plug him in. I don't think he's a starting center on the team, but you know you need guys like know. that. He he, he could be because he, he reminds be. me a lot of like uh, like Austin Blythe. You know,
0: just interesting, steady Eddie. You know,
2: yeah, I, great description. Steady player, smart at the pivot, understands his leverage. Is he going to do those athletic things that we talked about with Kendrick Green? Where he's going to put no. no No. not his game but you know could he start he could but that's the kind of you know mortar that you need in that bricks of the offensive line to have people to step in that eh, maybe they push for starting spot especially when they develop um so that i like that pick chris evans from michigan how did you feel about chris evans Eh. (laughs) yeah that's like, how I, I felt about i scouted him in 20 uh 2019 because i wasn't sure if he was going to come out or not and he, he didn't chose to go back and i was like hey, look he you know he's a blue chip did, does he, he went do to anything Michigan.
0: dynamic i don't think he did any, one dynamic
2: thing he was just he's, he's okay yeah he felt like a lot of the guys that seattle ends up drafting right that didn't have way? amazing college careers, right? And they're again sort of like what you said about Trey Hill, like steady. Like Chris Evans did he got he got the yards that were blocked. That's what my other podcast partner, uh, who's a former offensive lineman, JB, always says, right? He gets what's blocked for him, like which is the sort of backhanded compliment of you're not very special as a running back. Like he hits his hole, he gets his yards. I know some people this year got pretty excited about him. He had some pretty good testing. Um, I I saw the well, same uh, thing. Here's, I that's saw, the thing. Like, the testing,
0: the testing made no sense to me because I was like, he doesn't jump forty inches.
2: It doesn't translate. Yeah,
0: he doesn't run four four.
2: Yeah, not on he's film. Not bad.
0: He, he's not running away. Like what? No. Yeah, it's like it's like the opposite of Richard LeCount. I was like, that's not true. It's just not true.
2: Yeah, it matches up for the wrong reasons or doesn't match up for the wrong reasons. Um, I just wanted to check because we really hadn't talked a lot about Chris Evans because I didn't really bring him up in my in my running back at Palooza because for a reason. Yeah, he just he didn't. It wasn't terrible. But there was nothing special about that. So uh, they get him, uh, you know, maybe again, he meshes with the staff. He understands their scheme. And maybe some of those gifts that didn't come out at Michigan, for some reason, pop out in Cincinnati. They'd be lucky if they did and then their last pick i was actually kind of glad that wyatt hubert got picked in the seventh round now because i don't like wyatt hubert but because there's a lot of buzz early on and uh, pff had put up some stuff about wyatt hubert early on in the process kind of put him on my radar or moved him up my radar a little bit uh about him having really good pass rush win rates and i was like okay gotta gotta watch him fairly early i watched him before uh the senior bowl and I came away feeling a little bit like Chris Evans. I was like he's an effort player. He's going to win those sacks where he keeps working. He's very strong. Um he's not terribly flexible. He doesn't have great bend. Uh he's not super tall or super long in the arms. Um he's he's a real effort player. He's a tough guy and he's going to get more cleanups than he is straight what we'd call, you know, quality wins or quality rush, you know straight up where he earns it solo um but there's a lot of buzz and people were talking about him in the sort of middle rounds you know fourth round player maybe and i i just didn't see it on tape so when he got drafted in the seventh round i was like okay maybe my valuation is 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 okay with him because if he was one of those guys that had like snuck into the end of the third round i would have been like okay i missed something i gotta go back i,
0: I never i never saw him as a third rounder but i did he was a player that i genuinely just you ever have one of those guys where you're like, okay, I know he's not special, but I just like watching him.
2: No, absolutely. You know. And I think he's, he's just that he's guy. a very
0: he's a pleasing player to watch cuz you're like, he plays his ass off. Yep. He's got good technique. Like he's a smart
2: player. He's tough. Yeah, And then there's a flip side to that coin because I went back and I was like, so why does he win? Right? Is it just effort? Is he just bullying through guys? No, he's not. He's strong, for sure. But it's not him winning with strength, right? And then you realize, oh, no, that was nice. Got his hands in the right place, right? Kept the hands off his chest, got his shoulders turned. Like, okay, he's playing with pretty good technique. And then you realize he has to. Yes. Yes. Right? You're like, no, his technique is good, but it has to be. And on the rushes where it's not, in the absence of that, where he doesn't win the hand fight or he's not first to strike he's just going to continue to push and you know he that's when he's going to sort of run the effort sack and you'd like to see players with both right because there are players that don't win that and they quit and they're never going to win anything right they if they don't win with their first move they just don't win and you're they're not going to win late in the down because they they give it up that's not hubert and that's why i think maybe you said he's pleasing to watch is because if he doesn't win with that he's not going to give up and he can get cleanup sacks but You realize that he has to play with kind of all cylinders firing all the time to get a good result. And when he doesn't, it's just going to be sort of uh, more grindier. Again, as a seventh round pick, no problem with that. Like that is take that shot every time again on a player that's going to play hard. It's a guy that I would absolutely think is going to eat some special teams downs. Well, you know, he reminds me of. Is Brooks Reed.
0: So Brooks Reed hmm. was a second round pick. He was a second round pick in 2011. Yeah. And not not and you think, okay, well, Brooks How many sacks did Brooks Reed have in his career? 22 and a half. And you're like, ah, okay, that's not great." Until you realize Brooks Reed was a second round pick and he had a 10-year career.
2: Yeah. And he still he was, might he
0: still might get signed and play this year. That's a successful second round pick.
2: You played oh, for sure. 10 years.
0: You know how hard it is to play for 10 years in the NFL. To get I consistent do. paychecks.
2: It's it's one of my biggest pet peeves when people say, oh, he's a 10-year starter. And I'm like, do you know what the chances of that are? Like, that's become my refrain when people say, oh, he's a 10-year starter in the league. And I'm like, okay, hey, let's start with the 10-year thing. 10-year thing, way above the average playing career. Yeah, right? triple. triple. Triple the average. Triple the average playing career, right? Way above. Now, starter... <laughs> For all that time, do you know how many people are both 10 year players and starters? And the answer is the percentages are in the single digits. It's really low, but people throw that phrase around all the time. Oh, he's a 10 year starter in the league. He's 10 year starter. I'm like, mm, if he survives for 10 years, that's good. I don't care what round he's yeah. picked in. And if he's a starter, that's gold, right? Brooks Reed, same thing. He's been in the league 10 years, he's not been a starter for 10 years.
0: No, it was a rotational right. play. He started. He started, you know,
2: early on. because yeah, I was going to say three, four, well maybe five years. Consider him a starter based on his snap count. And that's still, like yeah. you said, that is a very good second round pick. But people throw that one around way too lately. Oh, he's a 10-year starter. But he just, you know,
0: Hubert just reminds me so much of Brooks Reed, who was never an overwhelmingly gifted player, never overwhelmingly productive. We stuck around because he did his job. Yep. And he does his job. Assignment sound I like for kid. sure. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I, like I don't dislike him, but I was glad that he didn't get picked as early as some people had said early on. Again, variance occurs, lots of things happen, but early on in the process, you get some of these takes that really just don't fit with what you think you've seen up to that point. And why he was one of those guys, he kind of got a little bit of early buzz, and people were really kind of high on him. And I thought, hmm. I went back and watched him, and I was like, hmm nope still don't still don't see a high round pass rusher there but i do see a guy with high effort looks like a great team guy in terms of never giving up on a play so that kind of guy seventh round picks or lottery chips anyways sure take a swing right You, i don't think they're going to be sorry about it
0: now in terms of udfas get the bengals brought in um pretty interesting group so puka williams is probably the the headliner if there can be a headliner, UDFA, out of Kansas. Uh, Drew Chrisman from Ohio State, punter, actually grew up in the area. Well, technically grew up in Indiana, but he considers himself a – from what I read, he, he grew up a Bengals fan. So getting to sign for your you know your hometown team, that's pretty cool. Uh, Antonio Phillips, corner out of Ball State, pro Wells, a tight end uh, out of TCU. Darius Hodge from Marshall, he's an edge. And Colin Hill from South Carolina. Uh, and Riley Lee's from Northwestern is a wide receiver, but I, I didn't, I didn't watch him full disclosure. Okay. Um, but Puka Williams is probably the one that I want to focus on here. Cause he's very talented, very fun to watch. And also physics defying because how a human being can cut that well with no toes on one foot because of an unfortunate lawnmower accident when he was a, a child. Um, how the hell
2: ej can you explain that to me i can't i didn't learn that fact until right before this podcast uh um it may surprise the listeners and viewers that we don't know every last fact about every last draft pick we learned some of these things late like who they're related to whose brother they might be how many toes they do or do not have on their foot um <laughs> i watched uh Pook williams later <laughs> in the process and i was like wow wow this guy is really impressive and can make a difference. And I tweeted something out about, you know, Puka Williams is kind of fun. Like, it's a, it's a good guy. You know, plowing through like 35 running backs and I do running backs last. So I came to him late in the process. And immediately comes the chorus. Yeah, if you can if you can control the off-field stuff or you could deal with the off-field stuff. And I was like, oh, so there's something I didn't know along with the toes. Uh, yeah, checkered off field history for Puka Williams. So, not surprising he went undrafted based on that, especially in this year where uh, time with the players face to face were a little bit more limited, scouts' time on campus. Um, but you turn the tape on, and like Puka Williams is a is a very front runner, undersized, uh, incredible ability to cut with or without toes, uh, very quick cutter. Runs with surprising power for a small back, uh, but has great speed and can stretch. It can take what looks like a very small run and turn it into a very big run very quickly. And let's be honest, the Bengals have traditionally had a bit more flexible approach uh, to their players' off-field behavior and antics. They have certainly taken on more than a few folks uh, with that check box against them. Uh, So not not terribly surprised to see puka end up in cincinnati i hope uh he gets a shot flies right and plays well in the field because cincinnati fans will enjoy him he is a talented football player and i I will say this
0: by the way uh, on on the domestic battery thing because so when we say i want to actually say what it is instead of uh checkered pass because i i think that we you know owe it to the audience for them to know what's going on so um after his freshman season at kansas he got um, you know, charged. He was arrested for domestic battery, um, and then Les Miles suspended him during the investigation. He got a diversion for his arrests. From what I saw, there was nothing that ever happened after that in the three years that he played after. But it is something that that happened. And now we mentioned that the Bengals are uh, notable for bringing in players with off-field history. Um, But they also have a history of, what's the word? It's not rehabilitating. It's it's more helping players capitalize on the second chances that they do get.
1: Hmm.
0: I think of Joe Mixon. What he did in college was horrible. But ever since he got in the NFL, by all accounts, he's been a model citizen a good role model, active in the community. And so I I do understand that it's kind of a meme that you know the Bengals bring in guys that have been arrested because that's just what they do. But I truly think that it comes from a place of wanting to give these guys who, let's be honest, a lot of them come from not great places in their lives. Uh, I, I think that that reputation for the Bengals comes from a place of wanting to, you know, give these guys a second chance to make something out of their life and to use their talent to build generational wealth and kind of rise above some of the situations that they've come out of and become better men, better brothers, better sons, better fathers. So, you know, Puka Williams, who is a father himself now, I hope, as you mentioned, that he flies by the straight and narrow because for the sake of his kid, he, he needs to be, you know a different, better person. And I hope that he's successful in the league, whether he's got five toes or 10 toes, so that he can build that generational wealth, provide for his family, and be what Les Miles thought he could be. I'll just say that.
2: Yeah, he's a talented player. And he's certainly, the football football ability is not the question with Puka. Right? If you watch his tape, he is clearly NFL talented right? He has the ability to make a difference on an NFL football field. He has that kind of athletic gifts. Um, and you know, after mixing, they have runners, but they just got rid of Gio Bernard, right? Gio Bernard moved on and Puka could fill some of that role that Gio, that Gio filled for them. So, uh, he's got a shot. It'll be fascinating to see how he takes it. Um, fun player to watch absolutely and pro from tcu we were talking about this <laughs> the Bengals seem to collect tight ends that are all in some way a bit the same they have six <laughs> of them now and uh you look down the roster and there's no sort of clear alpha at that spot where you're like oh well that guy's a starter and everybody else is competing for backup spots um they have a lot of guys that look for the most part, I would say interchangeable and Pro Wells sort of slots into that, uh, tight end room and seems to have almost as good a chance as a lot of those guys do, because again, there's just not that clear striation of, oh, this guy is the starting, you know, blocking tight end. This guy's the starting move tight end or the primary pass catcher slot guy, whatever you want to call it. And then we have these other guys like there is on some teams. It's a fair, you know, fairly even level of talent throughout that room. And, and Prowell's talented guy maybe starts at the bottom, but again, the distance to the top isn't as far as it might be in a lot of NFL tight end rooms.
0: hundred percent agreed. Um, that the, the Bengals tight end room is one of the ones that I honestly cannot figure out because last year, at least early on in the season, CJ Uzama was the dude. like he was producing like if we're just going off pure production as like a top six or seven tight end and then you know he tore his achilles he's coming back this year but again coming off an achilles it's a tough thing to do now i have no idea what's going on is it true sample is it uzama coming back healthy uh is it pro wells showing up out of nowhere is it thad moss showing up out of nowhere who has a previous connection with joe burrow
2: i got no idea you got so, Mitchell Wilcox <laughs> and Cheyenne O'Grady, both guys that I thought were, you know, good. It's sort an of. even weirder tight end room
0: than the Bears. You know, the Bears famously had like 11 tight ends a couple years ago. And I I can't figure out this one even more than I couldn't figure out that Bears tight end room. And that's saying a lot. Uh, why don't we get into their veteran free agents that they brought in? Uh, pretty eclectic groups. So we got Mike Hilton coming over from Pittsburgh on a four year deal. Uh, threw more money at Hilton than almost everybody else in this defense, with the one exception being Trey Hendrickson, who they're paying four years $60 million. Well, the gu- the guarantees are kind of wonky. It's technically like a two-year deal if we look at guarantees. But still, $15 million a year is the main number that you look at for Trey Hendrickson. You're kind of like, okay, you couldn't just give that to Carl Lawson? <laughs> <laughs> who's, a, who's, a, who's a better yeah, player? Yeah, coulda. Uh, yeah, that one. That one seemed kind of like a panic buy to me. After Lawson went to the Jets, and they're like, "Oh shit, we we got to replace that dude," which you can't. It's Carl Lawson. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a two year deal to me. That's that's what it is. It's not it's not a real sixty million dollar deal. If it somehow plays out all four years, I will be surprised. At least at that price point, I'll just say that. Um, Chidobe Awuzie really solid signing three years, 22 million. Very good deal for Awuzie, who I think is like, what is that? Like seven and a half a year, somewhere around there. Like that's, that's very, very good value for Cincy. For yeah, a player like I Chidobe. like
2: that one a lot. Like as, as I'm looking at that list, if you're talking about combination of player skill and value and, and where those two meet and, and again, where they have needs on the roster, like I, I really like the Owosii signing.
0: Uh, Larry Joby, penetrating three technique to pair up with DJ Reader. Very much a fan of that pick. Only six point two million. Again, I, he went for a little less than I was expecting. Uh, it's I, a low it went,
2: cap year, man. That's the thing. I know. Just, there wasn't. It's just, he he's one of those players that we again, if he had come out a year ago, right? If he had been eligible yeah. a year ago to move on, you wouldn't see that deal. Right. You'd probably see a deal about three times that size, like a three year deal for like, oh, man, I wish I had Brad Spielberger here because he'd nail it. He's so good. At that. <laughs> but I, I would say ballpark and, and Brad will correct me if I'm wrong on Twitter. So uh, I got my safety net there. But um, I would have said, you know, probably seven and a half, maybe eight million a year for like two, three years. We're talking about like yeah. 20, 24 million for three years seems about right again guarantee structure would be a little bit flexible but that's i feel like last year that's what would have been the going rate this year there's just less money to go around and you know he moves on from cleveland very talented roster can afford again to lose him and not overpay him that's another upside of what andrew barry's built is he doesn't have to panic buy in free agency and say no no we can't afford to lose you i can i have other people to replace you uh but Ogan joe be very talented player only 27 years old right Pretty proven record. And, you know, since the in division, gets him for one year, 6.2. So. And a when you good look at bye. the rest
0: of the defensive tackle market, I mean, John Allen just signed for $18 million a year today. So if Ogan Joby goes out there and has a great season, I'm not saying he's going to get John Allen money because he's not John Allen. But, I mean, 6.2. It'll be, six. <laughs> be better than 6.2. It'll be yeah. better than 6.2. Again, we're looking at Aaron Donald at 20. Something we're looking at John Allen at 18, then you got a guy like Larry Ogunjobi you know, bringing up the rear at 6.2. He's he's underpaid, but that's why he took a one year deal so he can bet on himself next year. Uh, Mike Daniels kind of on the last legs of his career, uh, taking a one year 1.5. I really loved Mike Daniels back in his prime. Mm-hmm. I know the injuries added up, um, but I think he's worth bringing in just for having that kind of veteran presence. You know, he's a 32, 33-year-old DT that's done and seen it all. I think he's good for the rest of that defensive line, a particularly young defensive line. Again, you, you're not paying him for production. You're paying him for leadership and better No, if you're playing,
2: that. if you're playing Mike Daniels, like, 550, 600 snaps this year, something's gone <laughs> terribly wrong. You're in trouble. You're in trouble
0: uh ricardo allen a free safety from the falcons they brought in for one year one and a half again taking advantage of that low cap year just grabbing dudes and underpaying the hell out of them because they're all just going to take mercenary contracts and hit the market next year great deal for them uh to pair him up with jesse bates or even just use him as a third safety uh riley reef again that one year seven and a half million just a stopgap at right tackle because they needed something they absolutely needed something and they wanted to give themselves flexibility, you know, with their first pick so they didn't feel like they were forced into taking Pene Sewell. And I think Riley Reef is accomplishing that goal. Uh, Jordan Evans they retained. Kevin Huber they retained. Samaj P. Ryan they retained. And then they brought in uh, Kayvon Frazier and Trent Taylor, the slot receiver from the 49ers, who just based on the nature of the Niners offense where they're running so much 12 and 22 and 21 personnel, Trent Taylor never really got to shine. Um, Unfortunately for him, there's so many great receivers in Cincinnati that he still might not get to shine that much, but at least they're going to run a lot more 11 personnel in Cincinnati. So he has more of a chance to get on the field, but he's a good little player. I I like Trent Taylor. He just didn't have the most opportunity to uh to be featured in that Kyle Shannon system.
2: Yeah, I I'm with you on Taylor. I'm glad you said something about him because if you didn't, I was gonna he he is a guy that I like his game. Again, this is not a big production receiver just because of the sheer volume of targets that are gonna go to the guys ahead of him in the pecking order. But that doesn't mean that he's not gonna have, you know, that kind of year where he is you know if he establishes that rapport i don't know if he's doing off-season training with burrow or not but i could see joe burrow liking trent taylor because he gets open he's quick he's not afraid not afraid to play underneath or across the middle even though he's of limited size and he's effective and i could see him being a guy that picks up some key third downs uh you know keeps some drives alive chews up a little bit of yardage uh you know, plays his butt up, and I could just see him sort of sticking and being valuable. Is he going to displace anybody? Is it that kind of signing? No, but it's also a one year, nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And if he comes in and plays that sort of key third down role and ends up with you know three hundred or four hundred yards and maybe a touchdown or two thrown in, for less than a million bucks in the wide receiver market, like bingo. If Burrow loves yeah. him, awesome. It's just, uh,
0: it's it's a. Overall, very good offseason, in my opinion, for the Bengals. Again, are they where they want to be? Not even close. But they're a hell of a lot better than they were last year. The offensive line is deeper. Well, not done, but deeper. You know, Burrow's coming back healthy. He looks great so far, uh, at least in terms of recovery timetable. They got some draft picks that I really like. They got some free agents brought in for dirt cheap values just because they got lucky uh in terms of how how crazy this last offseason was they're trending up they're trending up are they still probably going to finish fourth in the division yeah but they're not going to be a pushover like they were and at least for Bengals fans it's probably all they can ask for at this point and now uh last but not least EJ let's talk about the Baltimore Ravens you know one of Really for a long time now, one of the model franchises in the NFL, basically since they you know started in Baltimore uh, in the mid 90s, they've been a uh, extremely successful franchise, you know, not winning the same number of Super Bowls as, say, the Patriots, but in terms of just being a consistently good team, very few down years, very few outright bad off seasons, model of stability. Just an extraordinarily well run franchise. And I think they ticked off yet another year of a fantastic offseason. Seems like they've had a million of those in a row at this point. Um, Yeah, let's dive into this Baltimore front office and coaching staff. Because again, it's just so damn consistent. You know, Eric DaCosta, 25 years with the organization, only in year three as a GM, but, you know, he started at the ground floor. Uh, with Ozzie Newsom as an area scout back in the mid '90s, starting in 1996, you know, the same years that that famous Ray Lewis, Jonathan Ogden draft, you know, he was on that staff and then worked his way up, eventually being Ozzie Newsom's successor. He's been there forever, seen all of the ups and the very few downs, mostly ups in that organization. Is just he's an incredible general manager. Uh, John Harbaugh, 14 years at head coach already for the Ravens. You know, we, we talk about Mike Tomlin being at, in year 15 and being amazed. Well, John Harbaugh has been there for almost just as long. He started in 08, you know, immediately made the playoffs in his first year as head coach, but he's only one year behind Tomlin in terms of tenure. You know, he's one of the old guard in the NFL now. Um, I kind of posed a question earlier about this, but I, a similar question about John Harbaugh. If he retired tomorrow, I think he's a Hall of Fame head coach. When you look at, the consistency, he's got the ring, playoff appearances. He's one of the few teams that could consistently challenge the Patriots in the postseason. Like He's he's a Hall of Fame coach to me. Uh, Greg Roman has been a fantastic uh, offensive coordinator in some ways for them for the last three years. Passing <laughs> game's been a little bit sketchy, but I do genuinely wonder, okay, how much of that was receiving options versus how much was the fact that they – call mesh in four verts way too damn much, and they don't really have much else going for them. But on the run schemes alone, I think that Greg Roman is a very good offensive coordinator. Again, not complete, but he's so good at what he does that I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And then Wink Martindale, you know, his fourth year at at D.C., uh, very underrated assistant coach in the league uh, in terms of just being able to generate pressure to be able to dictate to an offense, um, some of the blitzes that that he both designs and just has the balls to dial up, uh, you know, it's 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 very much like a you know an, an, a Buddy Ryan type defense where it's like, yeah, you might get us a couple times, but your quarterback's going to be in the cold tub regardless of whether we win or lose. And I just I love that approach to defense. They they are not afraid to bring the house. Any and every down. So I I love this coaching staff. I love this front office. It's a model of consistency. It's a model of stability. And every franchise in the NFL should aspire to be like the Baltimore Ravens.
2: Yeah, no arguments with DaCosta, for sure. He was the the GM and waiting for, it seemed like six or seven years every year when there was a GM opening, whenever one came up, everybody's like, can you pry to Costa away from the Ravens? Like everybody wanted him. He interviewed a lot. Ravens kept giving him more money and other titles and basically assured him, Hey, whenever Ozzy decides to step down, you're our guy. And he waited, you know, credit him with his patience. Also tremendous sense of humor, which is an underrated <laughs> characteristic in GMs. Ravens are good about releasing, um, Uh, just extra footage behind the scenes, interviews about their draft process. They had one with DaCosta walking through the Ravens draft room talking about why things are where. Um, Just really appreciate his approach overall, his results for sure, but his sense of humor is pretty good too. Um, Harbaugh's tremendous. uh, I, sort of my argument for I don't know why more special teams coaches aren't considered as head coaches because Harbaugh famously was a special teams coach and has shown to be a very, very good head manager of a football team. Uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, no, no, no issue with your comments about Don Martindale. I think uh very exciting defense. And I think the league needs that because the focus is on exciting offenses. And, you know, There's no hero story without a good villain, right? You need somebody pushing back (laughs) just as hard to make it sort of epic. And the Ravens will do that. Like you said, they push extremely hard. And yeah, you might get us sometimes, but we're going to get you the other times and you're going to feel it. So totally agree with Martindale. Roman, I think some of your comments about Zach Taylor are kind of the same comments I have for Roman, although Roman is much more tenured, right? I wonder if the league isn't catching up with him. Certainly it's a passing league, And I don't know that he has evolved on the passing side. His run game, no arguments, including the quarterback run game, which is an understated piece of this. Yes, you've got Lamar, but he knows how to use him. They have a tremendous stable of backs and their blocking is so much fun to watch up front, their run blocking, like super well executed, no issue whatsoever with the Ravens run game in all its facets, the offensive line, the running backs, the quarterback when it needs to happen the passing game has been incredibly frustrating. And yes, some of that is personnel-based, but as you noted, some of that is not. And I Mm -hmm. need to see things from Greg Roman this year about advances in the passing game, or he needs to go. Like, that's it. It's what's holding this team back. You have a tremendous run game. You have a very good defense. You've got a quarterback who's an MVP in this league, and you're struggling, to be unpredictable in the pass game and that is a death sentence in the modern nfl right you need to have some level of evolution there and i'm not sure that roman's got it feels like the tipping point where the league has passed him by with passing concepts so maybe they do a co-offensive coordinator thing and he's the run game coordinator and somebody else is the passing game coordinator maybe the play caller to freshen it up if it doesn't work this year but To get back to the other side of that particular coin, talent. And they uh, this is probably (laughs) one of the most mocked draft choices of the entire cycle, which is like Ravens go for a receiver in round one. And that receiver, many times, you and I both saw it, was Rashad Bateman. And they do get him. First pick, 27th overall. And I got no issues with that choice. I think that's a very solid choice.
0: I mean, at at some point, we all just started being like, it was like mid March, and we're like, Rashad Bateman's a Raven. Like, there's the least surprising selection after Trevor Lawrence in the entire first round. He just, he was a Raven the entire pre draft process. There there was nothing that was going to change that, it was preordained. Yeah, if he made it
2: to that spot, I would have been very shocked if they didn't pick him, Uh, which is surprising, right? Because you talked about the Ravens front office and they do use, you know, analytics or analysis on on the draft and the hit rate on first round receivers. I don't care how good they are, is really low. It's the lowest of any position right? And the highest is offensive line. Now they're doing okay on the offensive line. and They they figured that out. So I'm not surprised that they didn't pick an offensive lineman, but it's still a risk to pick a wide receiver. But their wide receiving core was so undermanned last year that it was a risk not to pick a wide receiver first. Like you're yeah. risking fan revolt, you're risking, you know, Lamar starting to say, uh, is this the Aaron Rodgers thing where you're just never going to buy me a receiver, right? So they did it it matched. It was, like you said, preordained for a long time. I think Rashad Bateman uh, steps into that role as the clear alpha. Nobody else on that wide receiver roster currently can match the range of skills. There are wide receivers that have greater skills in one area than him, but nobody that has a more well-rounded skill set currently on the roster. So if he's not starting week one, uh, I'd be I'd be stunned quite frankly. And then a guy we talked about, they get another pick in the first round, Odafe Owa from Penn State. Now, the Ravens love their pass rushers and Owa is really famous as testing out of this universe. I might don't be don't the, the most profile.
0: impressive it might be the most
2: impressive numbers ever. It it's it's up there. That's a that's a super good argument to have. Um but Oa, you know, his production was what, if people were worried about him, it was that he lacked production, right? He didn't have sacks. With all this physical talent, he still wasn't maximizing that in terms of his pass rush production. Ravens say, no worries, <laughs> we'll take the tools, put them in our system. We have history developing players like this. And if, you know, again, I said it earlier about Pittsburgh, the Ravens are another one of those teams, right? Right. You give them that ball of clay pass rusher. They have enough patience and they have enough experience that if it's going to work, it will work here. So no issues with the second pick in the first round. And then we get to the mountain. Ben Cleveland, the guard out of Georgia. Massive human being. And I don't know if I've ever seen anybody as cut at 354 as Ben Cleveland is. No, I it's it's funny because he
0: weigh well, quote unquote, weighs the same as Tyler Shelvin, and they are <laughs> totally different body types. It's it's that's, like it's that's so unfair. <laughs> 360? No, I mean you.
2: you're you're absolutely correct, but I just I can't get the vision out of my head. So Ben Cleveland, uh, super powerful guard georgia responsible for a lot of those holes you see him opening in sec lines very powerful uh if he needs some work it's on pass protection but again ravens what did we talk about with their offense focus on you know complex run blocking schemes a lot of power a lot of gap inside run schemes jk dobbins you saw him marking room you know you can name any ravens back you want they're getting yards inside the tackles like cleveland fits hand in glove with that system so was not at all surprised to see them take ben cleveland there um brandon stevens the corner out of smu was the first sort of huh pick for the ravens for me and and one of the bigger huh picks for me in the first three rounds like a i didn't have brandon stevens anywhere near the first three rounds and b i wouldn't have necessarily said that the Ravens did didn't seem like a fit to me how did you see the Stevens pick athlete
0: absolutely I mean low 4-4 jumps out the gym has corner and safety flexibility that to me and again when we look at the Ravens secondary you got Tavon Young elite nickel you got Marlon Humphrey elite corner Marcus Peters Top 10 to 12 corner, I would say, even even still. Top 10 to 12 corner in the league. You know, Chuck Clark, fantastic safety. Like the one spot, you know, I don't even, I like Deshaun Elliott too, but like he's like the one spot. We're like, okay, yeah, we can have some competition there. Brandon Stevens' is the competition because having that kind of range and explosiveness, he's just an athlete. And this is one of those coaching staffs where it's like, Screw it. Give us the dudes that run fast and jump high and we'll figure it out. Same thing with, you know,
2: Odafeoa. Give us the dudes that run fast and jump high and we'll figure it out. (laughs) It, It did feel like that as a pick, but I was surprised that they did it when they did it and at that position. I think they're more likely to take athletes, just what I would call more pure athletes who have less impressive tape, earlier. Like they'll they'll definitely take those guys, but they usually let the board come to them. Like that's the classic Ravens hallmark is like, well, if you're not gonna pick them and it's the bottom of the fourth, I'll we'll take them. And you get to the end of the draft and you're like, oh, the Ravens got all those guys. So I was a little bit surprised with when, not surprised with the athletic profile, but to your point, Deshaun Elliott is like the soul of that Ravens defense he hits dudes so hard and they love him for that like he had more like I'll just classify him as destroyer hits uh in the first half of last year than just about anybody else in the league when I was watching I was like oh who oh there it is again like Deshaun Elliott like he's on the edge of getting ejected pretty much every week because he is massacring people like he is unafraid to bring the lumber. And I think that really speaks to that division, that team. So I think Deshaun Elliott, yeah, competition for sure, but you're going to have to work pretty hard to pry that particular guy out of that. Uh, Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, Chuck Clark ain't going anywhere ever. Like, you know, he wears the dot for them. Highly respected Mm -hmm. locker room also helps that he's a really damn good player. Marcus Peters, Humphrey, Tavon—they're not not starting. I was like, if there's even a chance that anybody, like not not just Stevens, but anybody, you know, is going to get on the field, like that's the only spot out of the starting five. Like again, the Ravens secondary—you could argue when they're all healthy. Remember, they lost Tavon Young early in the year last year. You could argue when they're all healthy, they are the best in the league, like better than Miami. Better New England, mm. better than I'd say the
2: Rams were better last year by far, and, and not just because of the Tavon injury. Like,
0: well, last year, last year, right. but I'm like, now, mm. now, like, I, God, the Rams lost half their dudes, yeah. you know? But now it's like, God, Baltimore's secondary is pretty ridiculous. I think Baltimore versus Cleveland, like, those weapons versus Ravens' secondary is the thing to watch for me. Like, that is football pornography. is watching that offense versus this
2: defense it's going to be insane yeah hardcore hardcore matchup for sure then they revert to what i would think is a to me felt like a much more ravens pick and tylen wallace from oklahoma state wide receiver guy that i liked early in the process and and i think fell kind of through no fault of his own but just more other people rising up getting a little bit more shine later on the process tylen wallace was always super solid very physical effective catching the football it's one of those guys that's going to come in and be a three or four in the league and just do it very solidly for a long time has the potential to be a good number two i think with development um but that's probably not his it's not his floor could be his ceiling uh but very much fits the ravens profile of physical guys catch the ball good route runner not a bad athlete pretty much an all-arounder not a burner not a, you know, he's not six, four, um, he's not super slow either. He's just a very good, uh, if it's, if it's throwback, it's like a Bobby Ingram profile for me, a guy that's mm. a very solid receiver is going to do his job is going to be in the right place. Going to catch the ball. Um, not going to blow you away in any of those sort of, you know, outside measurable categories, but Tylen Wallace felt like a very Ravens pick to me. Um, then it goes Sean Wade from Ohio State, who's a guy that sort of again had that sort. Of, we talked about Marvin Wilson having incredible preseason hype, right? And a lot of Sean Wade's came from Kirk Herbstreit saying his name a lot on ESPN, and people thinking, oh, he's got to be one of the top corners in the country, one of those guys. When I dug into his film, I was like, mm, not a top corner in the country, not a bad corner playing at a you know. A school that's famous for producing cornerbacks but he's not that next guy for them that's going to be drafted you know in the top 15 and play outside in the, in the nfl for eight years that's not his game does it mean he's a bad athlete or bad corner no it means he has some technique things to work on he's a pretty good athlete and again the ravens go oh you're gonna let sean wade drop to the middle of the fifth we'll take him Right. Do we need him? No, we just talked about their secondary. They don't need him, but he's there. And again, DeCosta and his staff are smart enough to say, sure, middle of the fifth. That seems, seems like solid value. We'll grab him. And then, uh, Dalen Hayes out of defense, uh, out of Notre Dame defensive end, who I like. Uh, very, uh, I'm just going to say it, lunch pail player. Right. I think he's, he's got he's more flash. Classic.
0: Hands, but- yeah classic day three ravens effort pass rusher
2: yes (laughs) nailed it (laughs) it's
0: it's ferguson all over again
2: yeah i i like dalen hayes i thought he was a good player again now this is they finish up with three fifth round picks which are pretty high again to and his staff angling making sure that you know they're you know using sixth and seventh round picks for other things trading when they end up you know 16, 27, and 40 in round five are all Ravens, and they end up with Sean Wave, Dalen Hayes, and Ben Mason, the fullback out of Michigan, because there's about three teams in the league that were looking for a fullback. Ravens are one that use it all the time in Greg Roman's office, and Ben Mason is a good one. He is everything you want in a fullback. Yeah, he can catch. He can run. He is built like a tank and you know again his fit is really limited so they didn't have to fight anybody for him they didn't have to overdraft him they could wait and say you know hey our last pick in the draft 40th pick in the fifth round give me ben mason we got uses for him
0: yeah uh, he's a perfect fit for what they like to do absolutely perfect fit in terms of like you know how many offenses release a fullback down the seam on four verts not many, <laughs> but now they have a fullback that can not just release down the seam, but if Lamar throws it to him, actually catch the ball. Like it's it's a perfect, perfect fit. You know, is he going to be Kyle Usech? Like I'm not going to guarantee that because who's Kyle Usech? Like nobody. Yeah. Like Kyle Juszczyk is insane. But I I really really enjoy that fit. Um, looking at their UDFA class. You know, there's there's some interesting names on there. Adrian Ely from Oklahoma. Um, I would say Xavier Kelly from Arkansas is interesting. Nate McCreary from Saginaw State was somebody who was getting a little bit of buzz late in the process. Um, Dante, I want to say it's pronounced Silencio from Graceland. Maybe it might be Silencio. First of all, you can't find him anywhere. It's Graceland. I can't find measurements The only thing I know about him was that he was Lamar Jackson's favorite receiver when they were in high school together and Lamar was campaigning for the Ravens to sign him because that was Lamar's dude. It's all I got, (laughs) but it's It's an interesting story. It's It's an interesting story. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see how long he sticks around. If anything, it's just cool to see Lamar, you know, kind of campaign for, for his friend, his childhood friend to, to make it to an NFL training camp. Not everybody can say they, they get to do that in their life and, and we'll see what happens. I'll, I'm going to definitely be kind of checking back in to see if he makes it or not. but it's a cool story. Um, but really the headliner here that we got to talk about is our Darius Washington from TCU who had no business, no business being undrafted, like makes zero damn sense. I know he's small, but he doesn't play good that God. way. <laughs> good God. It's the the range, the ball skills, the ability to tackle in space, the willingness to play the run. Remember, he's a boundary side safety in TCU system. You know, Merrick as the field side safety has a lot of pass coverage duty as the boundary side safety. You are in the run fit a lot. Most of the time you are in the run fit. So this little like five, nine safety, had to come down and take on like dudes like Ramondre Stevenson, 230-pound running backs in the hole, and he did it. How this kind of versatile, flexible player went undrafted, I have no idea. He was a better safety or a better DB period than Brandon Stevens, and this is nothing against Brandon Stevens, who they got in the third round, and our Darius Washington, in my opinion, was a better player.
2: So, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know why he went I, undrafted. I don't have the answer. Did I tell you my Washington story? I don't know that I no. did. So, it, there were certain things just for efficiency that I saved in the process because I knew that I'd be watching two players or three players. So, like, Georgia's secondary, right? If you're watching all 22, just... of push those guys into a bucket and you're like i kind of watch three games from all of them and i'll watch them together and i'll just mash together we did this with uh the notre dame offensive line right we're watching basically all five guys four out of the five guys you just mash. so i was like hey both the tcu safeties and i watched a little bit of them individually but then i had two or three games queued up where i was going to go in and watch them both and so it was late at night and I went in and got their numbers because, again, if you're watching all 22 tape, they, there's no audio, right? So you go purely off the numbers. So I write down the numbers real quick and I start watching tape. And I'm maybe about a third of a game in. And I'm like, man, I thought Merrick was bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he is. And, and I get halfway through the tape and I'm like, what? wait a minute. No, Merrick's the bigger of the two of these guys. That guy guy didn't look big. And so I went back and I transposed the numbers and I'd written down Washington and I wrote Merrick's number and I wrote down Merrick and I wrote Washington's number. So I was sort of going through the first pass thinking, Hey, Merrick's the guy that's going to be drafted. here. I'll watch him first. End up watching the first half of the tape, watching Washington. And I wasn't disappointed. let me reiterate i was expecting one of the top two safeties in the draft i watched the wrong guy for a half and i was still like man he's pretty good <laughs> like yeah i get the hype darius, on Merrick. yeah our darius washington is a really good football player yes he is short no he does not play short he is incredibly physical quick feet quick eyes right he gets to the right place and yeah he if you stack him up against a six four slot receiver which could absolutely happen given the you know given the place he's going to play in the defense he's at a disadvantage that is the one time when he's stacked up against those guys in the big 12 six, six, or 6'4, right you can throw it over him. it's not that he can't jump he's an incredible leaper but look you're just giving up enough leverage when you're five eight five nine that that's that's going to be a mismatch. But guys that are 6'1", 6'2", that should be a clear mismatch for him, he played them so tough, so physically, right up in their face, that super effective. Again, no way that guy should go undrafted. Something we didn't know about. Injury, off-field, whatever. Talk about the Rich getting Richer, the Ravens score. Again, if that player, and he probably will because it's the Ravens, if that player hits... And he becomes a part of their secondary for the next four or five years playing at that level, even just the level he's at now, his floor. Staggering get in the UDFA market. Better be lucky than good sometimes.
0: I'll just say that, <laughs> especially when it comes here, to here. building a football team. Uh, why don't we talk about some of the veteran free agents they brought in? Uh, first things first, Kevin Zeitler coming over from the Giants for three years, $22.5 Uh I thought it was a great signing. You know, they, they – for as – Good as their offensive line was in terms of run blocking, I still felt they were lacking a little bit in pass protection. I felt it was kind of like a one-dimensional offensive line, so to speak. Kevin Zeitler, I think, is a little bit more well-rounded, a little bit better in pass pro, while still not sacrificing a whole lot uh, as a run blocker, uh, especially if you look at him, like maybe with the Giants it slipped a little bit but earlier in his career. I felt like he was a very, very adequate run blocker. Uh, Michael Schofield coming over from the Panthers on a one-year deal. He'll probably be a backup is my my best estimation. Uh, Alejandro Villanueva uh, coming over from uh, the Steelers, the hated Pittsburgh Steelers on a two-year deal. Tyus Bowser was the biggest move they made, which is a retention on a four-year deal. He was a very crucial player, very underrated for them, happy to see them. Uh, keep him around because their defense changes significantly when he's on the field. Uh, Juwan James, again, just kind of cycling in as many veteran offensive linemen as they can to compete for spots. They brought him in on a two-year deal. Uh, They retained Anthony Levine. They brought in Geno Stone. And then finally, as the capper, they brought in Sammy Watkins on a one-year deal as well. Um, But even then, even with Sammy Watkins... Can you even call it a pedigree at this point? Um, even with his veteran status, I still expect Rashad Bateman to be the number one there. Uh, I, I Just when you look at combination of physical skills, route running ability, ball skills, and, I mean, truth be told, durability, especially when talking about a guy like Watkins, um, Bateman's the dude. Now, Watkins, I think, can be a very capable number two when he's healthy, but I don't necessarily think that he's going to be the guy in that passing game.
2: I'd be disappointed if he was, and that's not a knock on Sammy, right? You go out in the first round, you're with your first pick in the first round. You spend it on a, a guy that you really think should occupy that role the guy should occupy that role right not some guy that you spent five million one year on like and now if Watkins blows him away in camp and earns it good on him maybe they run on competition I would be disappointed by that and I imagine that DaCosta and the staff would be disappointed by that a little bit too uh and rightfully so but the Villanueva move and the Juwan James move uh were really critical like Villanueva had a bunch of interest um some in returning to pittsburgh other teams had him in for visits again the you know the ravens had an interesting situation where they had two tackles one came in played left tackle which is the still higher priority spot typically the higher paying spot after ronnie stanley down an injury and he says brown says i want to do this right so you're either going to pay me like this or you got to get rid of me and so they're they're in a bit of a bind they end up trading him getting value but then they've got a hole right stanley's going to come back and play left tackle and that's great it's good quality you know very high quality young left tackle but you need you need some options right you go out and you get a really good option from a rival and you get Juwan james who is a solid guy for under five million in case that doesn't work out right again you've not pigeonholed yourself into this has got to work or we're screwed. You have a couple of options you can rotate in. Both of them have a bunch of starts. Like, these are veteran players. Um, they're not going to be shook by the things that they see. Uh, they might have to get used to Well, Villanueva won't have to get used to the division, which is nice. Juwan James might have a couple of welcome to the AFC North moments. Uh, but again, the Ravens haven't hamstrung themselves. They didn't spend ungodly money there's no panic purchase here but they've got quality depth going into the season and there's probably not going to be that much drop off a little sure a lot no but they didn't you know sell the bank to have to do it
0: uh by the way one note on the uh the orlando brown wanted to play left tackle thing because i i saw quite a few people uh, i guess you could say dogging Orlando saying that he was, you know, being selfish and he's like, oh, well, we already have Ronnie Stanley, you know, sit down, shut up, play right tackle. Uh, it wasn't just about the money. Uh, you know, one of the last promises that he made to his father before he passed away is that he would play left tackle. And so it's, it's a, it's a very important thing for him that he play left tackle because he feel like, he feels like he's honoring his father and keeping his commitment when he plays left instead of right. And, uh, you know, the Ravens understood that. And I think on some level Orlando understood why he couldn't play left tackle long-term for the Ravens because they already have an elite one in Ronnie Stanley. So I, don't, I didn't necessarily see it as a, a contentious situation or anything like that. It was more so the Ravens knew where he stood, Orlando knew where they stood, Uh, and they traded him away and got assets and now he gets to play left tackle and honor his dad. So I think everybody won in the end, you know, I think, uh, and, and the one thing that I will say is Ravens don't make it easier for Pat Mahomes to beat you. (laughs) That was my one, my one complaint. It was like, trade him anywhere. Just don't trade him to the chiefs. You're going to run into him next year in the playoffs don't make it harder on yourself than you need to. But, I don't know, maybe there was no other suitors. But that, that kind of struck me as odd that they intentionally strengthened their biggest competition. Um, why don't we get into the best AFC North players for fantasy football, in particular, for Underdog Fantasy Football, our title sponsor, all summer long, Underdog Fantasy. If you're not familiar with the best ball format, uh, again, it is, it's more about doing off-season research, drafting well, building good teams in July and August that you know you're going to get good values for that can pop off for you as the season goes on. It's not necessarily you having to time starts correctly and guess injury problems. Whoever on your roster is getting the most points from week to week, you will get credit for those points. So it's very much prioritizing good drafting and good off-season research and knowing how to build a team up front uh, rather than just kind of getting lucky with trades or getting lucky with injuries as the season goes on. So I I personally prefer this fantasy format because I think it rewards what I do best, which is draft prep. And so EJ and I are going to take you through a few of our favorite uh, players that we're targeting in the AFC North specifically for the best ball format. Number one for me, somebody who we didn't really mention that much when we talked about the Browns, was Odell Beckham Jr. There's kind of been an interesting narrative forming that Baker Mayfield is a better quarterback without Odell, that Odell was hurting the Browns' offense, and yada, 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 all this bullshit. It's not true. The problem with Odell's production early in the year and with Baker's production early in the year had nothing to do with Odell. It was all about, you know, communication. It was all about, the quarterback getting comfortable in the system. When I look at how often Odell got open and Baker either just didn't feel comfortable enough to be aggressive like he was later in the season where he's throwing bombs down the sideline to DPJ on the exact same plays that, (laughs) that Odell was getting open on, by the way, is just kind of a difference in mentality for the quarterback. You know, there were some adjustments deep down the field where, you know, if, if like a, a, A post safety was driving on a route. You know, Odell would adjust and take his angle deeper like he's supposed to, and Baker would still leave it flat, and it would cause an incompletion and a damn near interception. It was just those communication issues. It had nothing to do with Odell's ability to get open. He gets open like crazy. And I think it now that he has... You know More opportunities to build chemistry with his quarterback, with Baker Mayfield, at this camp Mayfield and everything like that. He's back from his ACL. He's healthy. He's still one of the most explosive receivers in the league, even at the age of 28. I fully expect Odell to return to dominant alpha receiver form this year and remind the league why, at least early in his career, he was on not just a Hall of Fame trajectory, but a first ballot trajectory.
2: Hall of Fame trajectory. Who would you say is your first fancy target for the AFC North? Guy we've talked about a lot. You can consider it a chalk pick, and it's Rashad Bateman. He's clearly the alpha wide receiver on that roster. People can say a lot of things about rookie production. We've seen rookie wide receiver production increase year over year. Uh, you know, came from a system at Minnesota with PJ Fleck where he was running more complex uh route combinations the jump to the nfl is always a thing but he has as much opportunity both within the system within the roster within his physical ability he's a very talented receiver showed that he's not slow everybody's like well he's really good at catching the ball and he's really physical which is always kind of code for yeah but he can't run Mm -mm. (laughs) no bateman came out and ran really good time so we've seen production from rookie wide receivers uh pop off. You know, we had Jefferson last year and you can go back a couple of years where there's always a couple of rookies in the right situation that produce. I think Bateman is as primed as any rookie wide receiver to do that. Um Jamar Chase maybe a little bit more cuz he's already got a relationship with his quarterback. Um but very similar kind of um outlook I think. And it really comes down to Roman. Like will Roman with that extra weapon, lean towards it and let Lamar open it up a little bit more, uh, because he's got somebody on the roster now that can get open reliably. I hope so. I I think it's an ideal situation. I think Bateman's gonna produce quickly. And if you get him on your fantasy team, you're gonna profit.
0: And the good thing is out of all the the rookie receivers, like in terms of like ADP and you know trying to find a, a quote unquote sleeper he's not talked about as much as Jamar chase as you know, either of the Bama guys, as even Elijah Moore gets more, more hype than him and probably deservedly. So, but he's, uh, I think just because people don't think of the Ravens as a dominant passing offense, he very much slips under the radar, even among people like me that look for rookie receivers to invest in. Like I'm, notorious for going all in on rookies because rookies tend to be where i get my 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 biggest values and rashad bateman even among rookie receivers i think is going to be a value so he's absolutely somebody that i would be targeting in the mid to late rounds because how often do you get a number one receiver for a team that late you know even one that that runs as much as baltimore does um i have my own baltimore even as my number two which is gus edwards and I know you're thinking, why are you taking a backup running back? Uh backup is a interesting term in Baltimore. It's really more of a running back A, running back B type situation. And then Lamar's running back C. Not saying Lamar is a running back. I'm just saying they give him a shitload of carries. So it's it's kind of like a a 40-30-30 split when you look at like total carries in the Baltimore offense. It's Who's the number one running back? Who's the number two running back? And then Lamar gets most of his carries in like high leverage situations, meaning like inside the five yard line or like third and one. They love running all that bash stuff. Like that's where he gets most of his carries. And then there's some scrambles on top of that. But it's very much a split workload. And Gus Edwards is now no longer the number three running back there behind Ingram and Dobbins. He's the number two which means his workload, theoretically, should go up from last year. And if we project his efficiency, because he was a very efficient running back with an increased workload, with potentially an even better offensive line than he had last year, he should be a very, very sneaky play at running back. And because it's best ball, you just need him to break a couple runs and vulture a couple touchdowns, and you have yourself a 15- to 20-point outing that you're getting for a very late round pick at running back. So I think he's particularly in a best ball format valuable because he's going to pop off on a few weeks and probably single-handedly win you those weeks. And if you're in, say, you know, like the Best Ball Mania competition, which you enter using promo code BRETT at the link down in the description below, where you get $25 free for entry for a $3.5 million contest, and you're trying to win a million-dollar first prize – Sometimes those late round picks like Gus Edwards can make the difference between winning and losing. So he's definitely somebody that I'm targeting heavily in best ball formats.
2: Yeah, and he's one of those guys that if J.K. Dobbins does end up with turf toe or turning an ankle and is, is on the bench for even just a couple of weeks, there's no drop off, right? I love yeah jk dobbins he is super talented i thought he should have been the automatic number one right after drafting because he was better than ingram and and better than edwards but gus edwards can run especially in that offense at a really high level so you might get a couple starter weeks out of him as well right running back is a high wear position you you never can tell um happened with everybody that drafted saquon last year right like somebody drafted wayne gallman (laughs) early in the year and, and they probably got pretty far on winning their league off Wayne gallman gus edwards could be very similar because even in the healthy weeks he's going to have production if he steps into the starters role he's not going to wilt right he's he's handled that level of load and and like brett said incredibly efficient in his carries. so you could get some tremendous value either way so my my second guy deontay johnson going with the steelers um last year 88 catches 923 yards seven touchdowns 10.5 yard average um wanted to see what he did in the end of last season always an interesting setup going into the next season we talked about the possible instability at at you know pittsburgh's quarterback spot if ben gets dinged up early look all bets are out the window but when when ben's in there and throwing the ball uh Deontay Johnson averaged seven catches, 77 yards per game over the last eight games, last half of last year. He's a value pick. His average ADP, overall 62, as a wide receiver, 24th right so guy didn't come in and it, it the pittsburgh offensive production's gonna rotate we saw that we didn't have a dominant guy juju was again falling down their priority list in the early part of the season it was the chase claypool show he was coming on scene he had a lot of big catches later in the year it evened out deontay johnson was the guy that was balancing out a lot of those catches now he had up and down weeks With best ball, that's not such a liability, right? Because if you forget to pick them on the good week and do pick them on the bad week, you're going to feel terrible. Here you don't have that. you got a guy that has production, has a relationship with the quarterback, gets open, needs to be a little bit more consistent catching the ball. But, you know, almost 1,000 yards, almost 90 catches last year, seven touchdowns. Not one of those guys that, you know, racks up a crap load of catches but never gets in the end zone very balanced wide receiver and you're going to get him for
1: um, i'll
2: say value lightly in terms of his overall adp so deontay johnson's my number two
0: and i guarantee you if he had a normal catch rate he would have had a hundred receptions for thousand yards so that's just really kind of the last missing piece with him he gets open easily he's a good deep threat he's a yak threat just got to catch the ball but the the ceiling on him you know, if he has kind of like a, a Will Fuller-type transformation where Will Fuller struggled to catch early in his career and then kind of figured it out later, um, it's it's that kind of ceiling where you could see him pop off for massive production on any given week as long as he kind of takes care of his consistency issues. Uh, for me, my third target is going to be another rookie, this one being Jamar Chase. You know I love T. Higgins. Absolutely adore T. Higgins. Love Tyler Boyd as a slot, too. One of the better slots in the league. But Jamar Chase is different. He is A.J. Brown and Steve Smith all wrapped up into one. You know, it's he is a remarkable specimen. The physicality he plays with, the burst that he has, the hands that he has in terms of like deep ball tracking ability down the field. He's a unique player. He's, he's one of the more talented receivers that we've seen come out since Julio Jones. And I don't think it's it's a, a crime to say that he's a damn near equivalent prospect to Julio. Julio was bigger, but in terms of everything else, Jamar Chase was an equivalent prospect to me. He's absolutely, utterly phenomenal. And so even though I love T. Higgins, and I know T. Higgins is your number three, So we're going to talk about both these Bengals receivers. I feel like Jamar Chase is going to end up being the reception hog and the yardage hog, while T. Higgins is going to take over the red zone and on third downs. And it's going to be a fascinating balance between Jamar Chase having like 12 catches and 150 yards, but T. Higgins having like four catches and two touchdowns. And every once in a while, one of them is going to outvalue the other, whereas one's relying on a lot of scores and the other's relying on just whooping ass of corners and getting every first down possible.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty telling that we're talking about fantasy and we picked the starting two Bengals wide receivers, which we both said was (laughs) the fourth team in the division. But they have a quarterback who proved last year that he's willing to throw the ball into coverage, which is always the thing with young quarterbacks coming into the league and understanding what NFL Open is versus what College Open is. And Burrow showed that he had that knack with T. Higgins last year. He's got even more familiarity with Jamar Chase. I, they're going to be up to speed very, very quickly, and and Chase can win anywhere. He can win with physicality. He can win with routes. He can win with speed. So he's going to have a lot of options, and Burrow will distribute the ball to where it's most advantageous right if they double chase consistently and they single up t higgins he's gonna throw to t higgins he showed he would last year you know if they basically roll over the top of t higgins in the same formation like he's gonna make sure he hits the guy underneath if that's boyd right he's He's very good at spreading the ball around and always has been since his LSU days um, at making sure that he maximizes the damage he does to the defense, right? Whatever you leave open, he will find and he will hit in rhythm. And so T Higgins last year, I was really interested in what his production was last year after Joe went down because they definitely had a relationship. And quite frankly, the Bengals QB situation was... (laughs) after joe went down it was not good it was not consistent the cool thing about t higgins is his his production was pretty consistent after joe went down it wasn't completely dependent on his relationship with joe he was growing as a player right before our eyes so last year 67 catches 908 yards um, so almost the exact same yards as deontay johnson in way less catches six touchdowns That's a 13.6 yard average. He's a big play receiver. He's going to pluck that ball off the top of the defensive back down the boundary for a first down plus uh, as an average. Um, I feel like defenses after the first couple of weeks are going to feel the sting of Jamar Chase and go, "Okay, we know T. Higgins is good, but we got to get on Chase because he's had. Two hundred yard games in the first four, or whatever, right? Yeah. They're gonna, they're gonna rotate. Maybe it's four in the first four, right? They're he's gonna get attention. He is that kind of prospect that you outline. And T. Higgins is gonna go to the bank on that. Like, sure, go ahead, leave me alone. I had almost a thousand yards in rookie season, where my quarterback went down in week eleven. I had six touchdowns, average better part of fourteen yards a catch. Feel free to single me at any opportunity. I welcome it <laughs> because I can beat it and I'm getting better. So um, he's probably going to end up with, I would say, even more single coverage than he got last year because nobody was doubling A.J. Green last year. Wasn't yeah. wasn't happening. They were doubling T. So he's probably going to get more single coverage than he did. And He put up those numbers with, with more double coverage. He had a couple of monster games as well. This isn't like, well, I'm projecting that he's going to break out. Right, he had a six for 125 and a seven for 115 and a score. Like those are, he's already proven it. Right, it's just more of those. And again, if he gets more single coverage, it's going to be easier for him. So he's got more offensive balance this year. There's going to be less concentration. He's already proved he can do it. It's going to be a year better. Like T. Higgins is a guy I like a lot.
0: Yeah, it's the Bengals are going to be a fun team to watch, even if they don't win very many games. Joe Burrow with that receiving core and even just a moderate improvement in pass protection and run blocking with Joe Mixon, by the way. He's one of the most talented running backs in the league. If the Bengals are boring to watch, I will eat a shoe. That is that is how confident I am Ooh. in Do their entertainment the factor. Oh,
2: God, please just make it make it malleable. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you're a great cook. I'm sure you can make it taste amazing. Oh, God. You're going to pick, like, a
0: clog or some bullshit like that? <laughs> just hurt me. Uh, uh, no, I just I'm, – I'm very confident in their entertainment value as a franchise, at least offensively. Defensively, I'm still not 100% sure. But offensively, they should be fun to watch. Um, and speaking of the Bengals, why don't we get into top and bottom of the AFC North? You know, who do we think – is going to win the division and who do we think is going to come in last obviously we both think that cincinnati is going to come in last but interestingly enough you and i were in agreement out of all these top three amazing teams who we thought was going to win it and that's the cleveland browns
2: yeah right off the top i we should both say any of these four teams could win it it's least likely we think that Cincinnati will do it because they're the team on the bottom of the division right now with three other very established good teams. Any of those other three teams could easily win the division. Um, We talked about an injury at the quarterback position. If Ben goes down, probably takes Pittsburgh chances out. I don't think they're going to win this, this division with a backup quarterback, right? If he stays healthy and Pittsburgh, you told me Pittsburgh won the division. I would say hmm, he did it again right? But I really feel like Cleveland has established something going into the second year. I'm not predicting a slump, right? They added even more talent. They have a better understanding. You talked about you know the quarterback taking the offensive threats away for the, his camp and saying, all right, we, we're not going to start off with that slow start and the bad communication. I really feel like Kevin Co. are the team to beat. And I know Pittsburgh fans will howl at that. they would be like, yeah, prove it. Well, this might be the year that they do prove it. Could the Ravens win it with more passing threats and Greg Roman opening up the offense a little bit more? Lamar continuing to be dynamic and very, you know, very strong pressure defense. Yeah, they absolutely could. If you told me Baltimore, you know, was going to the AFC championship game, I'd be like, Yep, I could see that. That's not a shocker. So it's really tight. The margins are really thin, but I feel like Cleveland's talent balance is really special. And they finally have a coaching staff that understands what all those pieces are and how to use them. So I feel like it's their time. I'm going to say on paper to start, Cleveland's the best. Cincinnati comes in fourth. But if you reshuffled that in pretty much any direction except for Cincinnati's on top, I would say I'm not terribly surprised because we were talking about razor thin margins in a really competitive division. And by the way, uh, Ravens and Steelers fans,
0: for those of you that are still saying prove it for the Browns, you know, let, let's see the offense prove it. The last time they played the Ravens on December 14th, nine months ago, they put up 42 points. Now, Lamar went Super Saiyan and put up 47, but. Cleveland Browns, against that defense, put up over 40 points in December. Last time they played the Steelers in the playoffs, they put up over 40 points. Absolutely crushed them. They were up like 35 to 6 or something like that, whatever it was, like (laughs) within the first three quarters. It was nuts. So there's your proof. This team, even without Odell Beckham, When they got their shit together and they communicated and, you know, Kevin Stefanski was really leaning into what Baker Mayfield does well. They put up over 40 points against two very good defenses. They're for real. They're absolutely for real. So I'm just like you. I'm all in on the Browns. Um, I think they're going to win the AFC North. Would I be shocked if the others did? No. But for my money, I'm betting on the Browns. Uh, And with that said, EJ, what do you say we get out of here? Yeah. Cause we We are (laughs) three and a half
2: hours into recording. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're deep into recording. I couldn't, I just want to say, I couldn't be happier for the Browns fans, right? The Browns fan base is the definition of long suffering. Right. And it, it does look like this is stability that they have just craved forever. And they deserve every bit of the Browns being good, being competitive, being exciting, you know being the leaders in the clubhouse or on paper however you want to say it like the browns fans deeply and richly deserve this and i'm excited that they get to you know whether or not they win the division i you know sure i hope they do but the browns fans get to see their team go out every week and put it to the opponent and that is something they've been waiting for for way 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 too long so good on you cleveland um don't think I'll probably get out to Cleveland to see a game this year, but I can't wait to get out, hang out, watch the dog pound go nuts for a team that richly deserves it. Like this team is, like Brett said, for real.
0: There have been people that have that were born and have gone literally their entire lives without seeing a good Browns team. So uh, it's a welcome change of pace. And I know uh, there's been a, a an outbreak of gloating Browns fans among AFC North message boards and on Twitter and everything like that. And Ravens fans and Steelers fans and Bengals fans are already sick of it. But guys, have some sympathy. These people have been through some shit. Just let them gloat. Give them a year. Give them a couple years. You, you Ravens, you just won the Super Bowl, like, in 2012. It's not that long ago. Steelers, you've been a dominant franchise. You've never had a losing season in the last 15 years. Chill out. Let them enjoy it. Is it obnoxious? Sure. But God, I would be obnoxious too if I had to put up what they put up with and then suddenly got a good team dropped to my lap. Have some sympathy. Uh, but with that being said, let's get out of here, EJ, because I'm I'm exhausted. I know you're exhausted too. I, I know the fans love these long three plus, yeah. plus hour podcasts, but um, yeah, they, they take a lot out of us. So thank you all if you're still here. Thank you all for listening. We only have two more divisions to do. These are the biggest shows, really, of the entire calendar year at this point. Um, but they're also the most fun to do. So we've still got the East. we got the NFC East and then the AFC East to finish it off. Um, next week is going to be a doozy. And I already anticipate that our comment sections are going to be a, a horrific environment. Um, but yeah, that's the NFC East for you.
2: We'll see you soon, Eagles fans. Prepare. It's going to be something else and everybody else but thanks for watching on all corners of the globe whether you watch on YouTube whether you listen on your favorite podcast outlets um, whether you stop by the bootleg store and pick up a t-shirt everybody that showed us support on Twitter on YouTube uh, in the comments section no matter how horrific uh, we love it can't can't thank you all enough for all the support you've given to us to bootleg uh, to the enterprise it's the best you're the best thanks for hanging out with us
0: we'll see you guys next week with the NFC East